You're listening to the Blue Box Podcaster! And for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Uh, uh, cha! <laughs> you can't use that. I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. And I'm Simon. Dear Blue Box team, the recent... <laughs> God, God, straight, straight into it. it. Straight into it, I love it. <clears throat> Dear Blue Box team, the recent news from the BBC has prompted a lot of discussion on the legacy of Stephen Moffat as showrunner. Little of it new. But it has prompted me to write to you regarding a comment JR made a couple of weeks ago. When I was on the 42 to Doomsday Christmas episode last month, nice plug, David, we discussed that Moffat has had a drop in moments and ideas that old school fans will love, but also offers up moments that he knows they'll hate. Ah! <laughs> JR rebutted this comment by saying that Moffat wasn't dropping in moments for old school fans to hate, but moments that new school fans will love. This was a different way of looking at the situation and prompted further thought on my part. After all, discussing and debating ideas is the beauty of the podcast world. I've gone all a bit Alan Wicker now. Yeah, <laughs> you have. <laughs> <laughs> so, taking, yeah. Oh, that was more Jeremy Clarkson. <laughs> <clears throat> so, taking JR's comments at face value, I wonder, have we reached a point where... What these two groups of fans have wanted from us. It's all gone tits right up. <laughs> I can't. I haven't heard any of the email. I'm just listening to the accent. I'm going back what? to the start of the email oh, and it. doing it in an English accent. Dear Blue Box team, the recent news from the BBC has prompted a lot of discussion on the legacy of Stephen Moffat as showrunner. Little of it new. But it has prompted me to write to you regarding a comment JR made a couple of weeks ago. When I was on the 42 to Doomsday Christmas episode last month, nice plug, David, we discussed that Moffat knows how to drop in moments and ideas that old school fans will love, but also offers up moments that he knows they'll hate. JR rebutted this comment by saying that Moffat wasn't dropping in moments for old school fans to hate, but moments that new Who fans will love. This was a different way of looking at the situation and prompted further thought on my part. After all, discussing and debating ideas is the beauty of the podcast world. So, taking JR's comment at face value, I wonder, have we reached a point where what these two groups of fans are wanting from the story are so very different that pleasing them both simultaneously is incredibly difficult? I didn't say impossible, because episodes such as Day of the Doctor, Listen and Heaven Sent do seem to manage it. Is stuff, new food, <clears throat> is stuff new fans will love going to be hated by older fans? Has the gap 
been widened because Stephen Moffat has been very strong in pursuing his own direction with the show? Or does Moffat get the blame because he's in the chair at a time when TV is changing anyway? And could the new showrunner close that gap? Or is Doctor Who fandom just too large to please all of the people all of the time? I'm interested to hear your thoughts, as I think this is a much bigger question than just Moffat lovers versus Moffat haters, <coughs> which are silly labels anyway. Regards, David in Melbourne. That's a huge... Th- I mean, just in that little email, there's so much to talk about. That's an hour's worth right there, I think. Mm. But there are some... Uh, great, I wasn't going to invite points. you to talk about it. <laughs> I was just going to tell you... Just get to the toilet. <laughs> You're just going to tell us. Yeah. <laughs> we'll stop. <laughs> I was going to tell you what reply I gave to him and well, then go on. read out the second email he sent in and then we can discuss it. All oh, right, I'll have forgotten what I think. <laughs> well, do I your said, accent. <clears throat> I'm going to do it in your accent. You want to do my reply in my accent? My yeah, reply's not written down. Accent. Oh, isn't it? Go on then. No. Oh, well, I just, I, re- I said back to him, you have a fringe of old school fans who get pissed off with the stuff that pleases the new school fans. And you have a fringe of new school fans who get pissed off at the stuff that pleases the old school fans. But if it's a Venn diagram, the bit in the middle is huge. The bit in the middle is 7 million people Mm. who are getting on and enjoying it, with a fringe of a few thousand people in the wider (coughs) part of the Venn diagram on either side. Mm. So it's really just the tiny, tiniest minority. It might be be less than that, if you think about the amount of people on, on the internet... All the same kind of names coming up, but I've got the same thoughts. Oh, but, God, also, yeah. but, that, but also, there's ones on the um, uh, on the edge, on the negative side of things. The old school fans, they will be split between those who are either not liking the direction it's going, or those who are literally just digging their heels in, who don't want the show to change. Hmm. So again, it breaks down again, doesn't it? It's yeah. far more complicated. I can't believe that's still the case, is it? There can't, be, there can't be hill diggers. To look. <laughs> I mean, we've had a new show for 10 years now. It must be used to the fact that it's, it has changed. No, yeah. there's still people walking really? away from it. I think they just take a little bit longer, like. maybe a little bit longer to catch up. You know, because well, a lot of them have probably now enjoy the RTD and are <laughs> still kind of... Yeah, maybe. I mean, I was a bit like that with Blur, I think. It took me about five years to appreciate them. Oh, let's not go into Blur with Jay Arnold. <laughs> <please. clears throat> yeah... <laughs> I sold all my Blur albums. Simon's face. <laughs> and I, I said that about the mass majority in the middle, yeah. and I brought up the ice cream analogy. Oh, yes. Yeah, Simon yeah. likes that. I, knew I that. like that, yeah. <clears throat> well, yeah. for anybody who doesn't know, imagine Doctor Who is ice cream. And the people who like Doctor Who are people who like ice cream. But there will be some people who like ice cream who don't like strawberries. And there will be some people who like ice cream who don't like chocolate. Mm. So every now and again, Doctor Who will go through a story or a season or a phase where it's all choc chip. And the people who don't like the chocolate won't get on with that phase of the programme. But once it stops being choc chip and goes back to being strawberry or vanilla, they'll like it again. Mm. And, you know, conversely, there'll be phases when the series goes through a strawberry phase or a strawberry story that sticks out like a sore thumb for them. And this is always going to be the case. But just because you don't like strawberries Mm. shouldn't also mean that you don't like ice cream. Mm. And, you know, the whole point of it is 
if somebody makes ice cream with strawberries in, then it's not the maker of the strawberry ice cream who's at fault. It's just that your taste is at variance with that particular phase of ice cream, as it were. Mm, so then you might, you might get a Neapolitan era. <clears throat> you were about to say that, were you? No, it's all right. I don't steal your ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I'm, say no I was going to say I'm a Neapolitan watcher. I see. Um. Yeah, but then you you just take what you enjoy, don't you? You either you either push the plate away from you and say, no, it's got chocolate in it. I'm not watching that. I'm not eating that. But I'm, I'm a Knickerbocker Glory fan, so I'll, I'll take the ice cream and all the periphery edge as well. You know, like the Sarah Jane Adventures, which is a meringue. <laughs> Lee. Yeah. Lee. And uh, the listeners, which is a fruit. The listeners might not be able to see you, but Simon and I are sitting here, and we can tell that you're the kind of person who eats the bowl and the spoon, <laughs> and probably half the table too. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Where the <goodness. clears throat> Um, so just say yeah, copyright Nicholas Briggs <laughs> for the strawberry ice cream analogy. Oh, it's an old analogy. Oh, is it? I think so. Yeah, I think he got told it by a well-known science fiction writer. I can't remember their name, but yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it's not copyright Nicholas Briggs if he was told it by. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I heard it was when he said it. But anyway, yeah. Mm. Yeah, Mr. Briggs. <clears throat> anyway, David wrote back and said, you are, of course, absolutely right that every rational person must accept that the show isn't just for them. Oh, because at the end of the ice cream analogy, you know, you get to the point where the person who likes strawberry but doesn't like chocolate chip is demanding strawberry. And conversely, the person who likes chocolate chip is demanding chocolate chip. That's not how it works. You know, the ice cream maker makes the ice cream. You either accept it or you say, no, that's not to my taste. But you don't get to tell him what ice cream to make in his ice cream factory. No. You just about... walk into the shop and hope they've got the flavour you want. And, and also, doesn't... you don't go in and say, sorry, uh, you don't go in and sort of say, you're not doing the flavour I like, you're you're obviously making the ice cream badly. That's exactly it, yeah. yeah. That's what I was looking for, but in my tired old brain didn't get there. Unless yes. everyone turns around and stops <laughs> being sick on the floor after eating it, then obviously it's yeah. not being made badly, is it? But, but, you know, because ice cream's got strawberries in, it doesn't mean it's madly, badly made ice cream. Yeah. It just means it's ice cream that's not to your taste. Exactly, yeah. What the hell are you on about? <clears throat> <laughs> where's, <clears throat> where's Doctor Who gone? You are, of course, absolutely right that every <laughs> rational person must accept that the show isn't just for them. We will talk about Series 4 in a bit. Indeed, speaking personally, that's why I walked away from the show in Series 6. I wasn't angry at the show or anything. I simply accepted that the formulation that season wasn't for me. And rather than whinge and complain about it, I'd watch something else and let others enjoy it. And yes, while we're talking 10%, because I said, you know, you'll have 10% who don't like strawberry and 10% who don't like chalk chips, and 80% are quite happy with a lot. Mm. He says, they are, the 10%, they are a 10% that are deeply invested in the show, talk about the show, and have been doing so for a long time. Is this the Doctor Who equivalent of Westminster Village talk? <laughs> Absolutely it is, but as we live inside that village, fair enough. Let me take your ice cream analogy and put a different spin on it. Everyone likes ice cream. Some people like choc chips in their ice cream. Some like strawberries. Some like both. But if you like choc chips and don't like strawberries, then when you have a mouthful with choc chips, you're loving the moment. But then you go to a strawberry in the next mouthful and it takes you out of the enjoyment. Some weeks the ice cream has little of either. Some weeks the ice cream is full of strawberries. 
I agree 100% that no one has the right to say I only want choc chips and therefore everyone should have choc chips. That would be silly. But, he says, is it ideal for people to say ice cream these days has too many strawberries so I'm giving up ice cream? I'd hope not. But my question, I guess, comes down to, is active Doctor Who fandom so wide now that it's inevitable that some can't be satisfied? And I guess from there, you have to give Stephen Moffat credit for broadening what Doctor Who can be. But if I was working in my day job, I'd say that widening the appeal is only good if you pick up more people from the new ideas than you lose diluting the old. Anyway, like I say, I don't want this to be a damn Moffat, he's ruined Who piece. It's something I'm genuinely thoughtful about, or at least try to be. David Kitchen in Melbourne. Well, just on the point of widening the appeal when you widen the appeal and this is what philip hinchcliffe did when he took over from barry letts he said we've got the 8 to 12 year olds let's see if we can get the 13 and 14 year olds instead and philip hinchcliffe is on the record as saying that he was making doctor who that he hoped would have still appealed to those 8 to 12 year olds but that was skewed just ever so slightly older so that he was hoping he would pick up those older kids too mm. so he could broaden its appeal mm. And that's kind of the point. When you broaden the appeal of something, that shouldn't mean that you lose the old people. It means that you should keep the old people, but add to that number. Mm. Do you think with this last series he has actually broadened the appeal? I think it's been more like uh, he's been quite focused Mm. on telling great stories and getting through a a very interesting season that's never been done before. It's like cutting through the ice. and, and No, I think... Um, covering new ground I no I think Stephen Moffat's alternated I don't think he's I don't, oh yeah through his tenure but I was just seeing more along the lines of the last season yeah but the season before was a season of a broader appeal uh, yeah, a wider well, range a of stories yeah, yeah. and this season has kind of said right we're not going to pick up any more people from doing that so let's keep that but let's do it in a slightly different way that appeals to a certain kind of other person mm. And yeah, there were some people who would prefer the slower pace of the stories, I guess. Mm-hmm. So you may drag those in. But actually, it looks like it backfired and lost a few people. Um, <clears throat> now you've taken me away from the point. I was mm. well, uh, picking up on the, this thing about oh, you the, this this old chestnut of you've ruined Doctor Who. It's not like it can't come back from it. That's the bit I don't get when people say oh, he's ruining Doctor Who. It's it's not like it can <clears throat> it can't recover if there's anything to recover from do you know what i've been doing the people who um have me on facebook might know this but i just this few days ago started posting the scores that i'd given for the magazine Mm -hmm. just because i couldn't remember what scores i'd given some of the stories myself and so and i've been reviewing them since the start of the stephen moffat era so i decided to post up on facebook all my scores from stephen moffat era mm. and if the editor's listening i was hoping that would direct people to actually go and read the reviews that's a thumbs up he's doing that <laughs> <laughs> all right but but the then lots of other people came on the threads and started adding their own scores by way of comparison. And so I extended it and went back and scored all of Russell T. Davis and now I've done all of the classic era as well. So I've scored all of Doctor Who on Facebook by the time you hear this. But here's <clears throat> something that kind of illustrates what we're talking about. There's a friend of mine who's a perfectly rational man who 
has this year, halfway through the series, three quarters of the way through the series, walked away and not watched the end of series nine. He said, just grates on him. He's just not enjoying it. So he's just walked away and not watched the end of the series and doesn't intend to until he's got some distance on it and maybe sometime in the future he'll come back and look at it. Five years' time. And yet, this afternoon, he put his scores down for series five, Matt Smith's first series, Mm. which is not exactly a million miles away from what we're currently getting and actually is probably further away from the classic series than series nine was. So this guy who enjoyed Matt Smith's first year enough to give it basically decent scores, average about six and a half, seven across the board, which is, you know, mm-hmm. fairly decent, with, you know, nines interspersed with fours and stuff. He gave the first Matt Smith series reasonable scores. Six years later, a series that is probably more like the Doctor Who that he likes mm. than that year was, he's walked away from. And, you know, what I'm saying is, in Doctor Who, whether it's Stephen Moffat Doctor Who, or Andrew Cartmel Doctor Who, or Eric Sayward Doctor Who, or Christopher Bidmead Doctor Who, or whatever kind of Doctor Who it is that you think is different from the Doctor Who that you got into when you first got into Doctor Who, yes, there's kind of a surface gloss of it that's different, but the core of it, the huge, big, bubbling magma core that makes up 90% of that planet is exactly the same. Mm. And, you know, different people come to the series and they'll say, right, here's a series about a man who travels around the universe in a blue box, never quite sure where he's going to land from one week to the next. He arrives in a place, there's a problem, he sorts it out and leaves like a sort of sci-fi Tom and Jerry version of Clint Eastwood in High Plains Drifter or whatever. (laughs) And, you know, that is essentially what you get every single week. And even Stephen Moffat, when he's doing something like Hellbent, which was about as far on the surface of it from that as you think you can get, because it's all about him saving the life of this one particular person. Yeah, this week... He's in a place where the problem is this particular person has died and he wants to save her and that's the problem he solves. So, okay, he's not fighting an alien invasion this week. It doesn't have to be an alien invasion every week. And this is what I loved about... I don't think I said this when we reviewed it and we did two episodes reviewing it, but this is what I loved about the Husbands of River Song. It said, you know, just for once, and it still had it. It still had a great big robot that was severing people's heads. But just for once, Doctor Who doesn't even need to be about that kind of dilemma. It can just be something else. You know what I'd really like to see? I'd like to see one series of Doctor Who, just one series, where there are no alien invasions, where there are no villains, where there are no machines gone wrong. I'd like to see one series of Doctor Who where for 12 episodes the Doctor arrives in a bunch of different places and has... An adventure of some kind, a story each week in a bunch of different genres Mm. that don't involve alien invasions, that don't involve peril and deadly dilemmas. (laughs) You know, not a romantic comedy, but... You're getting old. (laughs) 
No, I'd really like to see that. I think that could be a really interesting thing to do with the programme. Just say, okay, it doesn't need to be about alien invasions could you get and away with scientists that? and stuff. It'll could... be like Forest of the Dead, though, wouldn't it? What it was called, <clears throat> Forest of the Night. Mm-hmm. Pardon? It'd be like Forest of the Night. Yeah, but no, Forest... Jar's not talking in about the, the Doctor night, being benign. In the Forest of the in Night. In the night Forest Garden thing, yeah. Do you, is that what you're insinuating, that the Doctor's benign in that story? That yeah, kind of there's, there's, not the really, is... there's not really an invasion. Impotent, do you mean? There's no invasion in that, that story, is there? No. At all. It's Impotent, just, it's just, yeah, it's just the Earth protecting itself mm. with the help of the little guy, I think. Yeah, but no, but what I'm saying is... there is still, He can still have an yeah, effect. Yeah, but there is, there is a life or death peril in that episode. With a tiger or two, yeah. I'm saying 12 episodes where there's no life or death peril. I'll take the tigers out. But yeah, it'd be like that, wouldn't it? I mean, <clears throat> you occasionally get odd episodes that turn up like, and... They always stick some life or death peril in it, but look at um, Time Heist. For one week, Doctor Who is doing Hustle. Mm. So I'm saying, okay, step away from the crater mass, step away from, you know, all these other things, step away from the sci-fi, and for 12 weeks, just do 12 different time heists in 12 different genres where the Doctor gets involved in a story that's not about aliens invading somewhere or some villain trying to put some people down or mm. rebels who need helping to overthrow the bad guy at the top or whatever. So there's no tangible arc as such? <clears throat> no, I'm not theme. talking about whether there's an arc. You can have an arc still. Mm. You can have an arc across 12 episodes, but it doesn't need to be the universe is in danger. Mm. Have 12 episodes where nobody's in any danger or mm. not that kind of danger. The Maltese Falcon. Do a Doctor Who version of the Maltese Falcon. Do Doctor Who versions of all these other things. A matter of life and death. You know, you can take any story, any classic story from any genre and say, right, how could that work in Doctor Who? And find a way to do it. It it could be done. Doctor does uh, Jurassic Park. Mamma Mia. You know what Stephen Moffat does so brilliantly? (laughs) Could. What Stephen Moffat does so brilliantly. It could. Is he takes ideas... (laughs) And he sci-fis them. So, like I said about when we got to the end of Series 9, is that he's telling the story of a marriage breakup. And he sci-fied it up. So it's all about taking somebody from the point of death and travelling backwards in time and then travelling forwards in time and doing all this other sci-fi chicanery. But actually, what you're telling is the story of a marriage breakup. So, exactly the same, Mamma Mia, or... Something like, I don't know, a Jane Austen novel. Take a Jane Austen novel. Take what happens to the characters in a Jane Austen novel. Do what Clueless did to it. You know, Clueless took a Jane Austen novel and eventually, ultimately stripped it of the sort of period romance thing and just took the bare bones of the story and made something almost completely new of it. Mm. Take a Jane Austen story and instead of it being about a love triangle... Turn it into some other kind of triangle that has some kind of science fiction rationale and tell that story in the Doctor Who universe. Why not give these things a go? Because they do give these things a go every now and again, just a little bit with things like Time Heist. And they generally work well enough to think that if you were to put your mind to it and actually do a run of stories like that, you could come up with something unique and interesting in the history of the programme that could be pretty wonderful. And then the following year, it goes back to being the kind of Doctor Who with, you know, Daleks and monsters and stuff that everybody knows. And you've, you know... 
put your stamp on the programme's history. What do you think of that, Simon? Mm, well, you know me, I'm up for anything. It's <clears throat> true. The lead does know that you're up for anything, and I've seen the evidence. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> and now that we've been talking for 25 minutes, maybe we should talk about Series 4, yeah? Yeah, sure. Mm. Okay. Um, well, here we go. We have... Um, is that the whole series there? Because I don't want to see the whole... We are doing half at a time, yes? Yeah. Yeah. You is don't want to look at it? Yeah. Well, just don't look at the piece of paper, then. I look at the piece of paper. You stuck it right on. I can't really do this without the piece of paper. It's going to be very difficult. Okay, oh. I'll try to look. Okay, Come I'll try. Come on, Simon, you can do it. Okay. <clears throat> we always get us, get us to guess. We used... Yeah, we had... The last time we were doing this, we were on Skype, weren't we, I think? Oh, okay. Yeah, that long ago. <clears throat> Well, yeah, because we've had lots of things in between. Now, I think I don't know. This is not making a brilliant podcast so far, is it? <laughs> Do your impressions again. <clears throat> series four, ten stories. No, no, yes. no, series four, ten stories. Series four. Ha! <laughs> Doctor Donna. Ha! <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> that sounded like the listeners don't even know who you. You're doing an impression of, so they can't even gauge who's doing it well. Well, you were doing Bruce Lee, weren't you? Really? That's what it sounded like. <laughs> what was it supposed to be? You kill my father. Yeah, but what was it supposed to be? It was supposed to be Bingo Masters Breakout, wasn't it? Yeah, but Marky Smith isn't nasal. Yes, Damn, I've said who yes, it was. He is. Yes, he is. He's not. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Bengal Masters Breakouts. Frank Sidebottom. That's what it sounds like. Frank Sidebottom. That's how you do it next week. Oh, uh, no. There's a ghost in my house. I can't hide. <laughs> check the record. Check the record. Check the record. Now you've got to pinch your nose. Check the record. No, it's just not working. No. C-R-E-E-P. <laughs> <laughs> We got a few comments from people about the season as a whole. Sean, we are going to talk about series four, I promise. (laughs) We got our listeners to vote the stories into their order of preference. And so we're going to do the bottom five this week and then the top five next week. I tell you what, you know, I had Paul Draper on the other week. Mm -hmm. And the Anchoress album, the one that he produced and co-wrote about two thirds of with Catherine Ann Davis... Came out a couple of weeks ago. Been in my car. Excellent. Highly recommended. Right. I'm going to do a short review of it now, and then I've got a couple of films. Right. Then we'll do series four, right? <laughs> Look at his face. Ah, oh, God, I'm so tired. I'm having fun. It's a self-torture, isn't it? In about 45 minutes, I'm going to have a complete breakdown on the podcast. If that happens, Lee, will you do me a favour? We'll keep recording? No, I was going to say, just try not to laugh. All right, go on then. Sean M. Vale says, This is a surprisingly hard series to rate. It's got some of my all-time favourites, and each for a different reason. But it has my favourite companion in it. I love the dynamic between Donna and Ten. Such great comic timing between the two of them. I also have to rate it very highly because of the introduction of River Song, a wonderful character who might arguably have been ill-used later but is an amazing creation and a part of the Doctor Who universe that I really love. The series also has three of the strongest science fiction stories in Doctor Who history, with the Doctor's daughter, Turn Left, and Midnight. 
My chief gripe with series four is the return of Rose, which robbed that character of a beautiful and tragic ending. <clears throat> yeah, when he says the Doctor's daughter is strong science fiction, he doesn't necessarily mean it's also good science fiction, Lee. <laughs> <clears throat> Miles Northcott says, a great season this one. Donna returns so much better than in The Runaway Bride and the relationship between her and the Doctor was really well realised. Much more old school, although in turn that painted RTD into a corner with having to find a way to write Donna out that was terminal, although scarcely anything has been terminal in 21st century Doctor Who, as Rose proved this season and Donna herself proved in the end of time. Despite that, the character arc worked very nicely and the rapport the two shared was believable and fun. Rose's return, threaded through the season, also helped it to build to something momentous, and it was great to see Domestos back and played so beautifully by Julian Bleach. I know a lot of people have an issue with the whole Rose arc this year and also with the alternative 10th Doctor, who I suppose is really officially the 11th Doctor, but I found it to be a very satisfying conclusion which tied things up well, even if we did get yet another Deus Ex Machina resolution. The standout story of the year for me was Midnight, though. RTD at his very best and a classic example of how you don't need to see a monster or have loads of sets and special effects to make a truly great story. Kieran Hyman says, Before Series 9, this was my favourite series of New Who. It's quite hard to rank since they're all excellent bar one, though as a kid I found Midnight and Turn Left to be monumentally boring as all hell and The Doctor's <laughs> Daughter to be great fun. Well, there you are. <clears throat> told us. <laughs> David we got there, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, we'll, we'll get there and we'll talk about the stories ourselves in a minute, Lee. That's told us. <laughs> David Kitchen says this is a series that's really grown on me over time and while I don't think it has Tennant's best individual episodes I do think it's his best overall season with more episodes I can happily watch than any other I do dislike Catherine Tate's performance as Donna however Simon's face that's I think there's a lot of faces grimacing now that's my catchphrase for tonight Simon's, Simon's face. face yeah I'll think of one for you in a minute, Lee. Who's this talking? David Kitchen. I do dislike Catherine Tate's performance as Donna, however, but I appreciate that she's something of a Vegemite character in that regard. Ian Martin. <clears throat> wow. A genuine intellectual challenge to place this collection of turkeys, clunkers and stinkers into order of poorness. Okay, guys. I have to say, I'm pretty much with Ian Martin on this one. <clears throat> right, Simon, should we do the podcast together then? Okay, before no, no, we go this in, is going to be interesting. It's, before we go in is... to talk about the stories individually, uh, just a brief overview of the series as a whole. And since I've just given mine away, I think it's Russell T. Davis doing the same formula as he'd done the previous three series yet again. Russell T. Davis. Boyed up on his own success, doing all the worst things that he'd done over the last three years, more and more frequently and more and more obvious than he ever had done before. Planet of the Ood, where your song is ending soon, three stories into the run. Mm. You know, as I mentioned the other week, yeah, we'll come back to this. Oh my God, but the, it's ten stories, some of which are better than others. 
but I don't think there's a real genuine classic amongst them. Maybe one, mm. which we'll get to next week. <laughs> uh, I don't think any of the stories are dreadful. I just think that the emphasis this series is just badly wrong. All this Time Lord Victoria stuff that happens afterwards, you can see the roots of it this year. It's People moaned about the doc, Tenth Doctor and Rose being smug through Series 2. It's the Doctor and the Companion and the people making the stories and the people writing the stories and the people who are directing the stories being smug through this series. I just really don't especially like the veneer across the top of this series. I find it very hard to get past the self-satisfaction and start enjoying the stories. Which is not to say, having said that, that I don't enjoy the stories, because I'm on the record on this podcast many times as saying there isn't a single episode of Modern Doctor Who that I wouldn't put on for entertainment. I do enjoy the stories of this series. I find it much easier to watch them in isolation, away from each other, than mm, watch the whole mm. 13 in one go. Mm. Um... Donna, before we get into talking about the stories, Catherine Tate, I said when The Runaway Bride was on to lots of friends who were saying Catherine Tate hated her, I said she's a decent actress, Mm. she was supposed to start the story that way, and by the time you get to the rooftop, she's somebody completely different altogether, and that 10 minute scene outside the TARDIS at the end... She's a completely different character. And yes, you get that here. And yes, Catherine Tate's a much better actress than most people give her credit for. But having said that, there's one thing Catherine Tate's not very good at doing. And that is subtly changing from one emotion to the other. Mm -hmm. She swings from one emotion to the other. So you get scenes... Even throughout the whole of series four, she's still bellowing a lot. There's no getting away from it. You know, that's for me is the character. I know. Yeah, but haven't you met people like that where they literally swing between the two things? Yes, my daughter's like that. You know, I I don't. I think that's. I I think think whatever character she's playing, whether it's an extension of herself or what's on the script, I think it's that character was written for Catherine Tate because that's who she is. Exactly. Have you seen her in much else? Yes, and she does the same thing. No, not always, but. In most other things that you'll see her in, things like Start of a Ten, mm. she's playing much smaller roles with much less changes in emotion. Mm. Mm. And, you know, if you can get Catherine Tate doing one thing, mm. then that's fine. Mm. For instance, in Start of a Ten, yeah. I've seen her in a bunch of yeah, films. Yeah, no, I appreciate what you're saying. There. Okay. But you put her in something like Planet of the Ood again, because this is a perfect example of all the things I'm talking about. She goes from being bolshy to crying her eyes out, mm. and then back to bolshy in the course of about two minutes. She does less that than two minutes. Pretty much nine. every episode in this series, and that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, and yeah. you can't believe it when she does. No. It takes you out of the fiction. Mm. I don't no, know. I wouldn't it say is, that. I wouldn't say that. It is fiction. <laughs> it isn't real life, is it? I mean, everything has to be heightened some way. Look at David Tennant. Look at the stories themselves. Look at the whole, <clears throat> whole of the RTD era. Everything's heightened, isn't it? So... Yes, but there's a, there's heightening something and there's changing from one emotion to a completely different one to a completely different one again that quickly. But the point being, 
without the subtlety of you being able to see the change. You see the join in the change rather than watching the change happen. Anyway, I was so busy looking at the patchy stories to even notice that because for me, uh, the the strength of this series, sorry, David, is the Doctor and Donna, and it is Catherine Tate's performance and how David Tennant reacts to it, and it is that that carries this series through. But I tell you what, and yes, it's fun to watch. It feels like they're bobbing on, along on the top of. But I tell you a what, it is a lot of the time. But you know, if. Russell T. Davis had been building Doctor Who out of Lego. This mm. was the series he built out of Duplo. That's okay. what it is. Mm. I do feel... It's all really obvious. We'll probably come case. back to it at some stage, but I am so looking forward to the big finish stuff because I think that yeah, there's been this period of time where writers have said, <clears throat> God, I want to write for Doctor and the Doctor and Donna. And now it's going to happen. And it's going to happen away from that, as you say, that yeah, process yeah. that was happening. That, that well, what was happening? That, that tide in that wave of... Like you say, riding on the, the crest of their mm. Well, what success. was happening between Series 1 and Series 4 was that the emotional stuff was the stuff that was resonating, so they just kept making it more and more obvious. Mm. And by the time you get to Series 4, they're just ramming it down your throats. This is the bit where you'll be angry. This is the bit where you'll cry. And it's in Series 1, I knew when I was supposed to be angry, and I knew when I was supposed to cry. And I was angry, and I cried. But I didn't need your hand halfway down my gullet, yanking at my stomach, of course. Yeah. telling me. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm, no, I do. But yeah. having said that, I still enjoy all these stories. Mm. But just And I did find myself, the high points in, in pretty much every story apart from a couple, the high point was always the bits with Donna. And I and I'm not I am not saying that as a Ta- Catherine Tate <clears> fan. <throat> I'm a Catherine Tate fan because of that series and what she did. But I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't a fan uh, originally. Are you saying because? And are you now? Yeah, I'm just saying. Mm. I am I'm more. Not... Yeah, yeah. I definitely appreciate her art a lot more. I went back and had to watch the Catherine Tate comedy show mm. and think, have I been doing her a disservice here? <laughs> and actually, I realised I was, but not. I still had, you know, there's a lot of sketches and things in there which I thought, oh, it's just treading water. Yeah, it's some just, it's really obvious. You know, it's very fast show stuff mm. all, all again. But there are moments, I mean, the grand and stuff like that, I just think, actually, these characters are brilliant. And I do know somebody like that, and it is good. She was already there's some, there's quite capable of doing completely different stuff. She'd already been yeah. in films and stuff before she did yeah, the Catherine yeah. Tate show, mm. and she was good. But I'd never seen her, I don't think, acting, acting. Mm. And Runaway Bride didn't impress me. I, I loved the episode, actually, I thought it was great fun. But I didn't really like her in it otherwise. I'm kind of glad she's coming <clears throat> back. And then when she was announced, the thing is, I had that moment where <clears throat> everybody had that moment when Billy Piper was announced. It's like, oh my God, you're joking. The thing is, Russell T. Davis knows that he can't do Gran or whatever, or what's she called, Stacy or something? Mm. I don't know. Um, character's called. Am I bothered? Lauren or something. Lauren. That's Lauren, it. that's yeah. it. He knows he can't do that. But by the same, same token, he also knows that that's what Catherine Tate's famous for. So he writes a more subtle version of that. But the thing is, he does play up to that through this series. He does that. He goes, you know, Catherine Tate's character, Donna, starts off being the one who... Well, at the end of The Runaway Bride, she says, no, I'm not coming with you, but you need somebody to peg you down. And in this one, he writes the character who's pegging the Doctor down. So... Essentially, in this series, throughout this series, she's playing the character who's beating the Doctor about the chops and saying, stop being a silly boy. Well, there's not much subtlety in beating somebody around the chops and calling them a silly boy, is there? Mm. So it's not written with any real degree of subtlety. Mm. I know she's capable of much better. I've seen her do much better elsewhere. 
And I think, you know, for what she does in this series, she's very entertaining to watch. Mm. But I wouldn't call it a nuanced performance by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. <clears throat> Lee, yes. series four as compared to the three that came before it. Because I know you're much more of a fan of this stuff than I am. Yeah, I mean, I, I always go by how I felt when I first watched it. And I think you're right about the mush. Things like Planet of the Ood and Files of Pompeii. They're all entertaining stories. Kids love them, actually. You know, all my kids love them. All the small kids, just they don't, they don't look too deep into this. Oh, it's a nude. Great. You know, uh, so that's what it felt like. It did feel like a, a series for kids. And then it got up that little bit darker towards the end, which felt like it was more paying lip service to the fans that have followed. Let's have a bit more of a darker Doctor Who for change. Um, well, they did that every year. Every year started light and got gradually darker. Yeah, 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 yeah. To, to foreshadow the last few episodes, I suppose. Um, it was Russell T. Davis's format. <clears throat> I think, um, you know, as I felt when I was watching it, it did feel like this was the point where, you know, w- what you were seeing on TV wasn't you. But what was new was the Catherine Tate performance and, and actually David Tennant's just totally enjoying himself. And I love the performances. I also love the comedy. The comedy beats in this series are unbelievably funny and good, I think. Um, and there were a few really fantastic, strong storylines in a couple of the episodes. And the last two are a couple of my favourites. I just enjoy the whole bombastic audacity of it all. <laughs> um, and you leave your brain at the door. But it's an odd thing, isn't it? When you look at it now, if you go back and look at it, compared to what we've just had, which is, I think, an astonishing season that we've just watched, designed for us, really, fans and adults, it's a completely different ball game. It's almost a different programme, entirely. Mm. But that's different eras of Doctor Who, isn't it? I mean, it's we're going to pick it apart. Um and you already have given a, a really good case for it not being a, a great season, both of you. Well, <clears throat> you know, not individual stories, but like you say, the veneer and, and the crest of a wave stuff and the mush. I totally agree with all that. But I think I have to keep thinking about what, how I first felt when I watched them. And I enjoyed a, about half of them and the others were OK. I enjoyed all of them and I still do. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, enjoy everything else more. To be honest, yeah. And you know, I've sound like I've just given a bit of a rant about the series, and like I say, that's the ten percent veneer around the top, and the ninety percent in the middle. I'm fine with. You know, it's like when Fear Her comes up. I always say Fear Her is thirty-five minutes of decent Doctor Who with ten minutes of Hugh Ed yeah. Hugh Edwards. To me, it's the means and like just 10. going completely <laughs> insane for the last ten minutes. And the last ten minutes. Almost ruins it, but I'll happily watch the first 35 and put up with the last 10 because I've enjoyed the first 35. And yeah, Rings of Acker 10, same thing. And same thing with this. I would still, if if I had to choose between, if if somebody had a gun to my head and said, right, you need to save Series 3 or Series 4, I would save Series 4 over Series 3. Eminently more watchable. Even though Series 3's got human nature and know, Blink yeah. and Utopia and... Mm. I'd ditch them both, both and just use the money to get Stephen Moffat to stay on and do Series 11 before Chris Chibnall comes in. (laughs) (laughs) Shall we find out what came 10th out of the 10 stories? I've actually found a way to do this, Simon, where you don't get anything spoiled. Well, I'm going to read some comments. Do you want to guess from the comments or do you want to guess before? Yeah, let's do it from the comments. Oh, seriously, this is Series 4. Is there any question what we're going to ask? Dylan Reese. 
This is as bad as New Who gets. The concept doesn't work, the script doesn't work, the acting is largely awful, and the design and execution is terrible. This looks more like a bad episode of 1980s Doctor Who than something on BBC Primetime. This is the only episode of Doctor Who that I wish they hadn't broadcast. Shockingly bad. Ian Martin says... The worst episode, not just of New Who, but of any Doctor Who ever in my book. Every last thing about this is toweringly, monstrously wrong and bad. In my honest opinion, obviously. (laughs) And Graham McClue says, dire. But at least David Tennant got something out of it. Hey. (laughs) 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 The Doctor's daughter. Yeah. Um, do you agree with that? Yes. Um, I don't want to. I really Hang don't on. want to. Did I just say yes? That actually came out. I didn't mean to say that. So that's obviously what I truly feel. But uh, yeah, it is bad. It's awful. Did I? I think that might, that's my my least favourite as well. I rewatched. Some... I rewatched all these episodes. What recently? A couple of weeks ago. Yeah. No just way. To, yeah. How did it I feel? Um, well, as far as this is concerned, I. I hadn't watched it since it was first on, and I heard all these comments about how bad it was and all that sort of thing. I was thinking to myself, well, it really isn't that bad. Yeah. Not from memory, it wasn't that bad, surely. And then I watched it, and it really is... It's, it's the Spock's brain of Doctor Who. It's got two really interesting ideas. Yes. yes. And what happens is they cock them both up. There's a really interesting idea about the clone aspect because this is we're not talking clones as in uh, like the Sontarans we're talking clones as in like in The Sixth Day have you ever seen the film The Sixth Day? Yes <laughs> oh, the army. It's not yeah. a brilliant film but it's I, got some interesting ideas in it It's better than this <laughs> But that's what I'm saying this could have aspired even to be that I, but it didn't The thing is I started watching it and there's a misstep from the off which yeah. is that it First two minutes, yeah. Bang! Oh, oh! You've got a daughter now, and that's uh, that's kind of that's the whole problem. Yeah, is using that word daughter. It's not his daughter; it's It's his his clone. clone. Mm. And then, what you get then is instead of going off and investigating the relationship between the clone and the person that clone is cloned from, instead. It does the Russell T. Davis thing. Got to have primary emotions, and you know everything's got to be right on the surface. Everything's got to be bold and broad mm, and obvious. Mm. And it says, no, we're not going to do a story about a clone. We're going to do a story about the daughter you never thought you had because she didn't, and here she is, brand new. <laughs> but that would have been better, wouldn't it? If if a daughter had turned up to claim that she was his daughter. Oh no, no, no! But that's a completely different. You're thing. actually right. The two peaks but of the story. The two peaks are well, a: how does this person come to be? Yeah. And b: what does that mean? What does that mean? And then you've got that lovely scene with Donna and the Doctor, and then Donna's sort of saying, "Hang on a minute, you know, she is part of you." All that sort of thing yeah. that could still have happened without her being technically yeah. his daughter. And you can be about a clone, so you can dump all the family stuff. Yeah. But keep the same emotional beats, mm. but just make it more uh, prudent to the story. Mm. Yeah, because there's that odd thing, isn't it? That he's he's totally believing he's the last Time Lord around. Absolute. Oh, was he? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. even yeah. the masters died now. Yeah, he so he's honestly believing that he's the last one. Yet here's somebody else who's cloned from his body, who's essentially a bit time lordy, and he's dismissing her mm. very quickly. And it's almost yeah. the, that big-headed time lord victoriousy thing is kicking him well early. It just everything. It's like when you write a story, and you know, there's the one thing I always say. Well, here's another thing: when you write a story, you've got to stop every line of dialogue. And every action every character takes and say, is this real? Is this this character? And you go into the doctor's daughter and instantly you're thinking, no, it's not real. No, it's not that character. I will say there's one thing that is a saving grace. And I wrote an essay in a book about this recently. Um, The Outside In Books from America, the new series one. I wrote an essay about the doctor's daughter defending it on two counts. And one of them is... You have to say it's saving grace is it gets it. Well, this is not how I put it, but it gets it so badly wrong. It's coming at it from so completely the wrong angle that it actually becomes an entirely different story yeah. that has nothing to do with the things this story is about. Mm. Almost to the degree where you can watch it on a completely different level. Which you have to. In order yeah, to enjoy yeah, it. you do. Yeah, yeah, you can ignore the. And the sci fi story that goes on in the background, which is mm. like basically the subplot, exactly the same thing. You know, it's two stories going on at the same time, the Seven Day War. Mm. Now, the Seven Day War is a really interesting idea in a cartoon Is that what they call it, Seven Day War? Well, I think it's a phrase... I think it's (laughs) It's a phrase that goes... Close to a story, I (laughs) I think it's a phrase that goes back to before this story, but this story's, like, illustrating Mm. it literally. Right, yes. But the Seven Day War is an interesting idea for a short story... A brilliant comic strip. Or a comic strip, or an annual story... Or something like that. In order to do it live action, mm. real life, and get away with it, you can't do it that literally. Mm. You and have to do small it. Small budget. You <laughs> budget's not the problem. The problem is doing it that literally, so that, so that when you get to the end of it, you can't believe it. You, there's no way you can suspend your disbelief that these people have been through this number of generations of clones. In seven days, I think we would have seen far more. And the guy within, who's in charge yeah. is supposed to have lived through all these seven days. Yes, yeah, is what I'm thinking. I mean, within so, that, the space of an episode, if it really is that short period of time within the space of the episode, you're going to see evidence that that sort of stuff's happening that quickly. You'd yeah. see like 15 people, generations or yeah, something. People getting wiped out. Yeah, within, within that is the problem. If it had been a year or something like that, it's still shocking. Yes. Yeah. But it's more believable. This, that, I had a problem with that straight away, the seven-day thing. I thought, in Great fact, idea. I remember it coming up and me leaning back in my chair and going, what? <laughs> um, <laughs> do you know what it feels like this episode? It feels like those games, those drawing games you do when you're a kid where you you do, right, you do the head and you leave the little lines for the neck and you fold it over <laughs> and you give it to someone else. <laughs> Because it was so disjointed. I know what you mean. And so there was no... No. Everything in it was. This is um, actually this is slightly the problem that Mark Gatiss seems to have, which is why his episodes never seem. Everything in it has got just enough thought Mm. so that it's interesting, but not enough thought so that anything follows through and makes sense. Mm. So, like a really interesting idea, like what happens if you take away sleep? You know that should have gone into some really interesting places, but it didn't. But it was a really interesting idea. Just. Nothing happened with it. No. Seven Day War. Really interesting yeah. idea to tell a story about an army 
that is getting so wiped out it has to keep replacing itself from clones, then, contratextually, really interesting idea to tell a story about taking an individual out of these clones and telling a story about what it means to be a clone. This guy's come up with these really interesting ideas and it hasn't followed through on either of them and instead has gone to some really weird and odd places instead. Where it's more about Martha learning to speak bubble. I mean, I have to I say, the that. design work. I, 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 she was in there. I actually like the design work. I actually like the um, the half. I think are lovely. Half, yeah. Actually, I do, and I like the idea. Brilliant figure. I like the, the idea that they mm. they speak in bubbles. It's totally ridiculous, of course, but who cares? It's very souls, and I like. You yeah, know, I the, the cartoony stuff. This I've said this so many times. Russell T Davis's Doctor Who started off really cartoony, <laughs> yeah. and then Dalek and Father's Day and stuff, and it was no longer cartoony. And that's why stories like this don't work, because this is written to be really cartoony, and yet you try and play it straight, and it doesn't work. Yeah. But and, but the dialogue's quite clunky and quite cartoony and very simplistic. I mean, it does actually, saying again about that disjointed feeling, it feels slightly cold as well, in a Phantom Menace kind of way. Oh, it does. You I, can't. I, there's no point in that story, especially during the last five minutes or so. The fit, you know, the nine o two one o fear her moment, mm. where David Tennant starts emoting to the heavens, and uh, Murray Gold follows him. The, there's no way you feel a single emotion during that. It's just horrifying looking mm. at the screen, mm. seeing the series screaming at you what you're supposed to be doing. And that happens in more than one story of this series. Yeah. It happens in quite a lot of them, actually. Who's the writer for this one? Stephen Greenhorn, who did the Lazarus Experiment. Okay. Now, the See, Lazarus Experiment, I think, is it's fine. reasonable it's okay. yeah. enough story, yeah. 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 But the Lazarus Experiment doesn't ask you to become emotionally involved in it in the way this one does. The Lazarus Experiment accepts the level of emotional involvement that you're going to have there's this guy, he's doing this radical thing, and he's a bit of a monster, but at the same time, he doesn't realise he's a monster, like most monsters, and so at the heart of that monstrousness, a human heart is beating, and at the end of the story, it just says, and here's that human heart. And yeah, you can connect with it emotionally on that level, because yeah. it doesn't ask you to do something else, like throwing a clone at you and telling you to have a family relationship with it. It is a shame. Uh, the, you know, I, I do remember watching this episode thinking this is going too fast and that there's there's no emotion in this. There's no... The pace is all wrong. Um, the, the sets are terrible. The acting is average. The, the, the writing's bad. Well, on the subject of pace... I think the, the sets and the design works, nothing wrong with it. Seriously? It I looked like it. the Caves of Androzani, but really mm. bad. Mm, okay. See, the pace is the problem. It's, this is a story that's feature film length it is I mean, and Russell T it. Davis is trying yeah. to tell it in 45 minutes I was going to say that's the problem Which this is... is the problem with most of Russell T Davis's stuff and though. this is why Stephen Moffat's that's when you look so at Heaven's Sent and Heaven, Heaven's Bent like Asylum of the Daleks it's just beautiful Asylum of the Daleks they plonk you in at one end of the maze tell you at the other end of the maze there's a girl that needs rescuing you get through the maze twist oh she's already gone she's already a Dalek Simple, 45 minutes worth of story. This, The Doctor's Daughter, it's like there's two feature films going on here, let alone one, The Seven Day War and the relationship between the lead character and his clone. 
you know, either of those two things could have been a feature film in itself. Mm. Stick them both together and stick them in forty-five minutes. You're knackered. So yeah, I mean, you can tell a you can tell a story really well in three and a half minutes. Most adverts do that, but you can tell a, a really good story in forty-five minutes if you pace it right. Which well, just, just look at strangely enough, ironically enough, look at Doctor's Daughter and then look at the Doctor's Wife. Well, yeah, they, well, that's, that's a good example. Same massive idea. Yeah, but somehow it's self-contained. But the Doctor's Wife doesn't feel the need to bring in last year's companion no. and throw her down into some quicksand for the fishes to rescue her. Do you know what I mean? It's fishes. like and the fish. The fish dies by drowning. You don't need Martha in this story. Uh, there is a reason why Martha's there, and is there? I I understand the the because yeah the the reason why Martha's there is literally because Russell T Davis said you need somebody to be with the fish so we can find out more about the fish, but Donna needs to be with Doctor and his daughter so that the Doctor's got mm. Donna on his shoulder as yeah. she will be throughout the whole series. Telling him where he's going wrong. So we need to bring somebody else in. And it has to be somebody we already know. Otherwise we've got no emotional involvement. No! You know, as much as the hath's a nice design, we don't need to find out about the fish. I thought that's the best part of it. <laughs> and maybe it was. Maybe, but it was the she... least necessary part what of it. What was the name of the hath that she was talking to? Did they have a name? Um, isn't it path Heth and... No, hath Peth and hath Hoth. hath Hoth. Finding Hathoth. That's my little Star Wars joke for the week. <laughs> Very good. Um, yeah. I suppose what they could have done is literally taken the Doctor, Donna and the daughter and then made them prisoners of the Hath. And then they find out from that side of things that, oh, okay, they're yeah, all right. They're okay yeah. afterwards. Then you've got that. Like the Planet of the Apes thing, you know, mm. where you get good and bad. Shows then that they've got uh, more depth as well. I suppose it's just going blah, blah, blah. No, I, under- I understand the mechanics of why it all happened. It just doesn't... Um, you know, you know my it feels rushed. Arthur. It feels rushed and yeah. thrown together very quickly. Mm. You know, and the cloying—is that the word? Cloying, cloying. Thank you. A moment at the end with the doctor and the gun. <laughs> moment, God, it's yeah. a whole five minutes scene. A, make build the what was it? Build this society on. It's a really the nice man line that never would. Yeah, no, that's lovely, a really nice quote. line. What a great quote. Mm. But the way it's delivered is, and the. Uh, Everything else that's around it before it gets delivered and after just absolutely kills it, stone dead. Yeah, yeah. But saying all this, I would, especially like to see, as... I would like to see the adventures of Jenny carry on. <laughs> Lord knows why, I just would, I think. Or the adventures of the planet that never would. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what positive stuff can we say about this then? Um, we can say the story that came in his eyes. <laughs> I did. Do you know what, though? At the end of it all, I said at the start of this podcast, well, I said about half an hour into this podcast, there's not a single story in this season that I wouldn't watch for pleasure, and that's true of The Doctor's Daughter. Mm, mm. It's In some ways, it's a car crash, but at the same time, there are so many bits of it that are actually, you know, relatively okay bits of Doctor Who, that if you try and watch it with your brain shut down, and the bit where you get the revelation about the seven days is still a great moment. Hmm. 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 <clears throat> it's like fear her if you lose the last five or ten minutes a lot of the rest of it's reasonably okay yeah. the stuff mm. between Jenny and the Doctor and Donna if you try and forget that Jenny's a clone 
<laughs> you know, there are some nice scenes, there's some nice dialogue, there are some nice emotional resonances, and although it skips through them way, way, way too fast, they're still there, and it's still relatively enjoyable to watch those things unfold. And then you get a hop, skipping, and jumping down the corridor through the, um, you know, alarm system. Mm-hmm. It's like... You know, Russell T. Davis said when he took over Doctor Who, he said, if I get 12 pages in and realise I've not killed anybody, I'm doing it wrong. By this point, it's almost like, you know, if I get 12 pages in and I haven't had a Scooby-Doo chase through a warehouse with a giant claw, I know I'm doing something wrong. (laughs) And that happens. We'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. (laughs) And that happens all the way through, you know, by the time he gets to Series 4, that he's doing it on a rotor almost kills a body big chase sequence something weird and emotional happens uh, history future present history future present it's like it's doctor who being made by numbers really 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 over emotional robots yes i don't know half but true <laughs> yeah all right fair enough Right, we should get on and find out what the story that came in ninth is. Oh, I tell you what, I'm going to give you a surprise now. Okay, let's... No. Let's... Ian Martin says, I think the kid was called Rattigan. He was unbearable. Graham McClue says, Satnavs and teenage whiz kids. Sigh. Dylan Reese says, This story isn't bad, but it's let down by the overall tone, which doesn't take the source material seriously enough. That's something I wanted to bring up in a second. It's more a 70s unit pastiche than a triumphant reinvention of unit. And David Kitchen says, A story I've come to appreciate over time. On first viewing, I was a little put off by the Sontarans themselves, especially their dance. But once you get over that, there's a strong story here with a good ending. And here's my surprise. I love Sontaran Stratagem. I think it's great. I know you do. I've been saying it a number of times before. Mm. Okay, so maybe it wasn't a surprise, sorry. (laughs) And I have the same... I mean, we're we're talking about problems at the moment, aren't we? But I have the same problems with it, and I think it's all in the trying to suspend my disbelief whilst watching it. It it felt like it was a... uh, Not a disparaging comment to BBV, but that kind of 1990s Doctor Who fan-based Doctor Who now and again because the lighting in it just oh, killed right. me. Oh, they were doing that uh, through the whole series. Rewinding, I don't, think there's, I don't think there's much problem with the story as such. Not when, really. When we look at the storyline, the actual story, I yeah. quite like it actually. I don't mind Rattigan. He needs to be really annoying and I think it, 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 he's so annoying that he, it's almost <laughs> unbearable to watch like he says. But I, I don't mind Rattigan. That's the whole point of him. But there's, there's again, there's too many ideas thrown in. You could, you've got a school of of, of whiz kids and things, and all the. I don't think there are too many ideas, Sarah Jane, doesn't it? Yeah, and I, I think know, that's the I tell you the what. ideas keep get re recurring in these hmm. RTD years, and they do do that a few times. Yeah, I mean, the idiots Lantern and Daleks in Manhattan both finishing with David Tennant climbing up. Yeah, exactly. That sort of tower thing to. No, Helen Rayner gets lots of really bad stick. And actually, it's a solid script. And it's not just a solid script, but what I always say about the elements need to add up to each other. And you say, oh, Rattigan and his school of whiz kids. But it's Rattigan and his school of whiz kids 
against an army of cloned warriors. I don't mean against in a mm. physical fisticuffs way, but I mean these are the two threads that go through it, the whiz kids against the cloned warriors. And actually, if you look at it on those terms, there's a kind of logical dichotomy between what's going on in one half of the story and what's going on in the other. And it actually kind of adds up to a kind of sense. It's a slightly mad sense. And then the idea of the sat-nav as well, mm. which goes through it. Okay, it's probably a bit stupid that the Sontarans would use gas or something to kill everybody on Earth rather than just invading, seeing as there's billions of them and they're all clones. But by the same token, you look at the Sontarans and you think, well, invade a whole planet which has got six or seven billion people on it, you're going to lose an awful lot of those clones. And it yeah. also has nuclear capability. <clears throat> if you really want this planet, then what better way than to invade it by stealth? That works. Now, of course, the illogicality is, why do you need this planet? Why couldn't you just do it on Mars or Jupiter where there's nobody to fight back or whatever? That doesn't work, but it's Doctor Who. And it's the science like fighting. There is yeah. actually a point where the Doctor says, doesn't he? Hang on, this isn't your style. I'm fairly sure. Yeah. I watched it the other mm, day. Yeah, yeah. So, so some of the things... You know, I like, I like the fact that they are doing something different. I just they kind of feel it should earth... be a little bit more sneaky. But, but are they conditioning the Earth's atmosphere as well a bit? For them. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's the point. point. They're using the gas to kill everybody off and to change it into a planet mm. that's suitable for Sontaran breeding. That, that, as you say, that makes that makes a sense. But the things add up as long as you're prepared to accept something along the lines of oh, the Sontarans are invading by stealth. If you can then accept that the Sontarans are invading by stealth instead of by force, then everything else adds up. It's whether you're prepared to accept that. But it's Doctor Who. It's you actually... know, you don't get a story unless the Sontarans are there invading. Yeah. So you have to accept that they're invading by stealth it's in order for there to be a story. In as much as that's the first Sontaran story of the new series, if we knew them as a, a warrior race, and it came as a surprise in that respect, it's almost... Well, no, because they don't play it as a surprise. They throw that line in to explain it for the old series fans mm, mm. who know the Sontarans of old. But it makes them f appear a little bit lukewarm. Yes. Well, yes. Well, yes. But, yes. No, no, but go back to the Sontaran experiment mm. and what are they doing? Invading by stealth. Go back to the invasion of time and what are they doing? They're invading by stealth. So not only <laughs> is it not as implausible as long as you're prepared to accept that they'll invade by stealth. But it follows the logic of what we've actually seen them do. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not denying that at all. I, I, but, you I know, once they of... get on Earth, they start firing up the unit soldiers. They're enjoying it, aren't they? They're having a good old... Oh, hell yeah. yeah. This is it. This, is, this isn't a war. This is, you know, mm. hunting or this is game or mm. whatever. And you know, it's that, the aesthetic, that you say. It's the that's aesthetic. That's the bit that I enjoyed. The fact that, oh, finally we're going to get some aliens <clears> killing off some humans with guns. Like, like everybody promises, we're going to have a war with the Earth. Let's see it happen. Um, you know, you get it with the Daleks and, and then the Cyberman a bit in Doomsday and whatever. But this is what I wanted to see. I wanted to see a bit of a bit of a tussle here, and it wasn't bad. But I I just couldn't get past the aesthetic. The, the you know the problem with the size of the Sontarans and the colours of their suits are really bright. And I thought if you're on a battlefield, you are not going to be coloured bright blue for stuff. <laughs> You know, it's not that logic bright. I don't well, mind I would have it. loved to have seen as a, as a camouflage changing suit, chameleon suit, or something well, clever like there's that. There's a reason they did that with the Sontarans, and that's because they basically used the original series Sontarans for the Jadoon the year before. Exactly. Do you remember when we first saw the Jadoon? Yeah. Everybody was saying, oh, 
Sultans. And then they took the helm off. Yeah. There's a couple of points here. One, when I first saw this, it seemed really disjointed when I watched the first episode. And when I watched the second episode, again, it felt really disjointed. And then I watched both the episodes, one after the other. And actually, if you watch them together, the pacing really works. It really builds. Oh, no, I thought that when I watched it the other day, yeah. It's mm. really well directed. The mm. problems with this are not with the direction, but with the art design and the yes. cinematographer. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and agree. this was one of Stephen Moffat's best decisions, get a new production designer and a new cinematographer in. Because, yeah. you know, as much as I appreciate what the guys were doing under RTD, after four years of it, it was getting very tiresome. The purple lighting in the um, clone chamber. That was just horrible. You know, I'm not, I'm not joking. I was in a film. That was Warriors of the Deep Horror, right? <laughs> I was in a film. I won't mention it. But I was in a film whereby, you know, it's it's an amateur film. And there, I remember someone saying, oh, yeah, I'm doing lighting. He's a professional lighter for theatre now. And he's excellent. By the time he's just starting his game. And the first thing he did was exactly that. He put a giant light just behind a whole load of boxes shooting up. So you could see it was a giant green light behind a box shooting up instead of creating atmosphere. It's like, well, why is there a light behind the box? It distracts it's, your attention. Yeah, it distracted mine because all I kept and seeing the was thing about the clone chamber the is... And the clone chamber is exactly the same. It's like, it's purple and all you can think about is, it's purple. Why is it there? And whatever else is happening in that room, you're just thinking, it's purple. Yeah. Why is it there? Yeah. Well, and actually, the scenes shot in there are very atmospheric or would be if it wasn't purple. <laughs> Exactly my point. The clone chain, the clones themselves coming out was creepy. That was a creepy moment. That's lovely. Really I tell good. you what else I thought really worked for me. Uh, Santa Ha. A lot of people have nah. got a problem with that. Really? Yeah, I no, thought that, that was worked. great. Yeah. No, you, you, you've got to have a catchphrase if you come from a planet. <laughs> you've got to have a catchphrase. <laughs> I just kind of feel I, I wish that they'd had a chance to establish the Sontarans as a race yeah. for the new series in the same way as they did with Dalek. And I suppose, for what it's worth, if it they did, did with Dalek, the Cybermen. I don't think Dalek did. I thought, think Dalek did the exact opposite of that. What do you mean? Well, it doesn't establish the Daleks as a species. It takes an individual Dalek and gives you a whole. No, but it gives a focus of... on the you know the whole centre of the program is about this Dalek. Yeah, but doing undalecky things, so it doesn't introduce you to the species. Mm. Okay. Yeah, and well, it does do Daleky things in the second half. Do you know what though? When we first met the Sontarans in the classic series, it was the Time Warrior. It was not a standard introduction to a species. When we um, first meet, I don't know, the Autons or whatever, they're doing things that are skewed towards, you know, human society. Mm. That's not what the Nestines would be like. It's Doctor Who. You don't get introduced to species in... You know, ways that are natural. Yeah, actually, like in fact, the Time Warrior is a bit like Dalek because you only get that one mm. Sontaran there. So mm. it's like the, the the last Sontaran or the whatever. But it, it would actually, have been quite good to introduce. Actually, yeah, someone. fair. I've never watched that actually, the Sarah Jane. Oh, right, you last Sontaran. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I think this is a really good introduction to the Sontarans. It gives you across the two episodes, it gives you a whole bunch of different things. Sontarans on the spaceship, Sontarans on the battlefield, and all these other kind of. across the two episodes actually looking back at it now it does everything I wanted it to I think you know all the when when Doctor Who came back 
Rose 2005, I had sort of a, a subconscious mental wish list of things I wanted to see. And one of those things was... What did you say? Subcontal? A subconscious mental oh, wish right. list. Subconscious, sorry. Like a, a bunch of things... Did you fall asleep I... for a second there? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, well, I didn't sit down and think, right, these are what I want from Doctor Who. But subconsciously, there mm. were things that I wanted to see in mm. Doctor Who. And by the time we got to this series, there were a bunch of things on that list that still hadn't happened. Mm. Like Aliens of London, I was hoping would be the big alien invasion story. We'd have scenes on a spaceship and scenes on a battlefield and, you know, all this kind of stuff. None of it happened. And then all of a sudden this story comes along and gives me a bunch of stuff I wanted to see. Mm. And, you know, I thought it was really clunky the first time I saw it. And then I watched it back again afterwards and I thought, no, some of the execution's clunky. The actor they've cast as Rattigan he's taking that character too far mm. and the purple lighting and things like that and you know all this kind of stuff and maybe yeah the blue Sontaran suits but given that we'd had the Jadu they had to do something I thought what they did was the best of what else they had a lot of it seemed clunky but forgivably so and if you know this is true of every Doctor Who story there's ever been it's never going to have the budget of Star Wars. There's going to be certain things you have to forgive. Some stories more things than others. Your enjoyment of Doctor Who, right from an unearthly child up to the husbands of River Song, is how much is it asking you to forgive and are you prepared, prepared to forgive that much? Mm. And I think if you prepared to forgive the things in this story, which I think are a lot slighter than they are in a lot of other stories in this series, mm. then yeah, the bit where Rattigan sacrifices himself at the end actually pretty good. Actually, pretty low That's key nice compared to the Doctor's daughter and Journey's end and all these other things. It's actually done much much better in this story than it mm. is almost anywhere else mm. in the series. Mm. You know, even possibly than in Forest of the Dead, where you've got the Doctor and River deciding who kills himself. I think that's done pretty well, yeah. but I think it's yeah. done even better here. Mm. Yeah, that's why. <clears throat> well, I certainly don't think it should be a ninth in my head. No, I wouldn't have put it that low, Dan. I have to say, there's some others that mm. definitely are lower. No. Oh, and as for the Sontarans themselves, the two guys who played the lead Sontarans were just great. Yes, yeah, that's got to be said. They're just too small. <laughs> No, no, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't have an issue with that at all. No, I do. Yeah? You can relate yeah. to it, surely. <laughs> it's more but all dumpy. The, but all the jokiness that Stephen Moffat's rung out of Strax is all here in the Sontarans in this story. Mm. You know, the like you say, when he comes out and he says it ain't war, it's a game or whatever, mm. that line of dialogue, that's, you know, basically the kernel from which Strax grew in personality terms. Yeah, it's all there. It's yeah, I really enjoyed it. What can I say? Mm. Thought it was really clunky the first time I watched it. Went back to it, thoroughly enjoyed it. But I don't think it's a classic. No, I just think it hits. It hits all the notes that I wanted it to hit. Mm. I do think it's at the bottom that with the Doctor Daughter because they have used exactly the same lighting. Yeah, <laughs> my, and also my because were... they both promised something that they perhaps didn't deliver. Yeah. Doctor's daughter promised a relationship that wasn't there in the story. Sontaran stratagem 
made the promise of the Time Warrior. It's like Gotcha Land, isn't it? Well, it made no the promise of Gotcha Land. It made the promise of the Time Warrior and delivered the two Doctors. Do you know what I mean? People were expecting something different than what they got. <laughs> two Doctors. As I say, my main issues aren't actually internal to the story itself. I don't have issues with it. I just wish it wasn't the first Sontaran story. But that's in my <clears throat> that's the only one so far. Well, yeah, apart from Strax. Mm. It's the only one where Sontarans are the antagonists. Mm. Mm. Mind you, we've not had another autumn. I, you know, if I wish anything of Chris Chibnall, it's do another Sontaran story and do another autumn story. Yes. Well, apart from their appearance in um, Matt Smith's first finale. Yeah, but that's not a Sontaran antagonist, no. Right? Okay, the story that comes next. Um, Dylan Reese, this is eighth now. Dylan Reese says, Graham Harper's best work as a director who really doesn't have what it takes to make modern action TV, but here he pulls it off. This is a middle-of-the-road adventure, and while it has some great bits and looks great, it fails to be as exciting as it should be. Does he mean Graham Harper's best work, then, if he failed to make it as exciting as it should be, given he's the excitement man? I'm not sure. Anyway, Ian Martin says... a compliment. Yeah, I can't quite work that out, actually. Ian Martin says, how boring was this? And the story that came in eighth was Planet of the Ood. And I think that was the story I voted bottom. Or maybe next to bottom. There are some bits of this I love. The idea that (laughs) somebody's been spiking this guy's drink so that he turns into an Ood is one of the most ridiculous things that Doctor Who's ever done. Yeah. But coming three weeks before the Doctor's daughter in the Seven Day War is kind of on a par with a lot of the rest of the series. Hey, I've got the thing called a reality bomb that destroys absolutely everything, and I'm going to use it. Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I love the reality bomb. <laughs> it destroys absolutely everything. <laughs> no, that's the madness of it. Who cares? It's, it's just going yeah. mad. Um there's a lot of madness in those last episodes. Anyway, but some of Planet of the Ood. I think yeah, I agree because you've you've been saying how much you really don't like or get on with this episode, and I'm sure you'll tell us all about it in a second. Well, I was about to. No, but look, <laughs> the reason why I'm cutting in is because I've had quite fond memories of this. I thought it was quite fun. I enjoyed it, but actually, since you were talking about it the other week, I've had to rethink about it, and I've, I thought about it this week. And actually, you're right. There are lumps of this which is apt. It's terrible, and there's great moments in it, but they're only moments. Yeah, so the sum is not as, as good as the whole thing. There's a, All the parts aren't as good as that. It's another one of those where there's a it's a great actor playing him. Can't remember his name offhand. Tim McCannery. Kimmy. Yeah. No, 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 no. The guy who is playing the undercover agent. Oh yeah. The guy yeah, who's yeah, been yeah. sent in to who's investigate. He? Oh, no, he's a really good actor. He's good. He's kind of a low-key actor. He's a really good actor. He's kind of a bit wasted in this because, again, too much going on that he's kind of thrown away. The brain in the sort of jar, jar, the brain in the tank, I mean, Mm, is, again, it's a really sort of Doctor Who-y idea. But like in Time and the Rani, it kind of, what's it doing there? The, The stuff with the ood where we're supposed to see them as some kind of cattle. But then again, we're supposed to see them as an intelligent species. But then again, we're supposed to look at them through some kind of hippie perspective, where it's all about... It's basically 1967. 
the Ood relationship in this story is like is peace and love and more especially harmony and this is the real reason why they have like a hive brain is because it's all about the species harmony mm -hmm. but that doesn't really fit in with the cattle thing <clears throat> so it's kind of they cut their brain out don't they ah yeah that's the thing it's the disconnection from the hive brain which is turns them into they're not disconnected from the hive brain though because they they do all connect in the same pit oh no that's true <clears throat> it's a clumsy empathic, empathic species yeah it's empathic. a clumsy idea Ooh, okay i don't know I i'm so letting well. you carry on because yeah. i yeah everything about this story is clumsy that's the kind of trouble the guy who wrote this story which is keith temple did the film oh what was it called the um the film where there's a works out into some foreign country and they arrive just as the cannibal people are cutting people up it's a comedy horror. Oh, it's right. really good. Yeah. It's got seven or eight. I know the name. Oh, yeah. Sorry. No, it's a really good film. Um, and it proves that he writes stuff that's quite subtle. Because although this film's not subtle in and of itself, it it has a quality that demonstrates that the writer knows exactly what he's doing and isn't overdoing it. Planet of the Ood, it's almost like Russell T. Davis took his script and ditched it and Russell T. Davis did it up to the max. But worst thing about this is the direction. It's, I think it's the title. Oh, Planet of the Ood. <laughs> yeah. Planet of the Ood's fine. Uh, it's just... Really? Planet of the Daleks, Planet of the Dead, Planet of the Spiders. It's fine. Mm, okay, I just kind of feel like it's moved on from that. No, I like that kind of thing. Mm. And, well, it's Doctor Who. If you didn't have titles like that every now and again. Yeah. I suppose they hadn't done... I think that was the first of those, actually. Mm. And that was. Um, I think maybe it's because they wanted Udi in the title. Because they wanted <laughs> to kind of promote the return of the Ood because they've been quite... You know, popular since the Satan Pit, they were becoming an iconic monster, weren't they? They were certainly. But they did the red eye thing again here. Mm. It's like. It's hard to describe, but it's like somebody's taken, again, lots of interesting ideas and thrown so many ideas at it and done them all in such primary colours that you just. There's nothing to engage you in the story. Okay. It's like. You've been, it's like you've been told everything rather than being asked to involve yourself in everything. Uh, and although there are lots of bits of it I kind of like, mm. and there are lots of bits of it where I'm watching it and thinking, yeah, I can see what they were doing there. And yes, they pretty much do it. It's just, you know, pull it back a bit and I'll find it easier to sort of we accept had, we it we hadn't had many alien planets up to this point either that we saw that were that, that were beautifully rendered in the way that it was i thought it was it right, looked no. great yeah but the worst that thing got me about quite this... excited at the beginning i thought oh this is nice we've got a nice planet finally it looks quite good and Catherine tate talking to a nude in the snow oh that was funny got to be careful oh, the... defrost your ood. the worst thing about this and this goes back to what dylan reese said about no, not Dylan Reese. No, where is it? There was a quote. 
Oh, I can't find it. Somebody said about Santaran's stratagem, I think. Mm. That... Oh, yeah. Dylan Reese says Santaran's stratagem doesn't take the source material seriously enough. There's this thing about the Russell T. Davis years where everybody who worked on it, everybody who visited the sets and everything, said there was this real family atmosphere. Like, everybody was chumming up together to make this television show. Everybody was pulling together. And since Stephen Moffat took over, and I don't think it's Moffat, I think it's the executive producers who've changed, who were, I think it was not so much Russell T. Davis, because he's hardly there. I think it was more down to Julie Gardner. And I think when she left is when this stopped. But somebody said about the Stephen Moffat era, that family atmosphere is not there anymore. But if you take the family atmosphere out of it, then the people who come in and do the jobs do a professional job. Mm. And because it's Doctor Who, they probably do still give that 110%, but they're given 110% of their professional behaviour rather than 75% of their professional behaviour mm. and 45% of family atmosphere. Yeah, if you're going to worry about... <clears throat> if you're going to want some kind of, uh, as you say, some kind of uh, biology... Not biology, but uh, chemistry. Sorry, wrong science between <laughs> between anyone. You want it in front of the camera. Yeah, rather than in the hotel and stuff. Yeah, but no. What I was coming to is in the Rusty Davis area area era. <laughs> there are a lot of the time when you look at the stories, or me. There are a lot of times when I look at the stories and I'm thinking, you know what you said about BBV just now? Yeah. A lot of the times I'm looking at the stories and the actors and everything else and I'm thinking, oh, purple light, isn't that marvellous? <laughs> and nobody stops and says, does it work? Mm. Somebody says, isn't it marvellous? Doesn't it look just hot diggity dog? And everybody says, yeah, it's marvellous. I do wonder if there's... And... Sorry, yeah, go on. And it's in the performances as well, and that's where it's at its absolute worst. There's this whole thing about the Russell T. Davis era where it feels like everybody's having so much fun mm. that they're forgetting to make stories that you can actually believe in. And there's a shot in this one. The girl who's like the guide who they meet at the start. Yeah, yeah. You can tell she can act. It's just that she's not doing it here. And the bit where she's about to get killed by the Ood... Not only is everybody having to not run around a yard so that these Ood can catch up with them and zap them with their little globes, but the bit where she's about to get zapped by an Ood, she actually has to run to the corner of a building, stop running, turn around, keep stopped as the Ood catches up with her, and as he lifts the globe up to zap her with it, she just about breaks into a grin. And I'm looking at a television series that's going out to 8 million people on a Saturday night in prime time and thinking, she's not supposed to be just about breaking into a grin. Reshoot it. Yeah. And reshoot it in an atmosphere where the actors aren't having a effing party behind the scenes so that they're actually <laughs> giving of their best work mm. rather than just having a really great time down in Cardiff making Doctor Who. Mm. I think the worst thing with Planet of the Ood is it looks like everybody there is having so much fun. I think Tom McHenry, Tim McHenry is brilliant. He is. And every now and again, you'll get somebody in who does that. But Doctor's Daughter, again, and another problem with that. The guy um, who played Makepeace, is it? Or Dempsey? Mm. I can't remember which is which. Oh, yeah, yeah. Michael. Michael. Yeah. Yeah. 
place the army. It's awful mm. in the Doctor's daughter. Hang on, no, you're. Th- yeah, I know what you mean. The older guy, the guy, the general, the guy who's in charge in the Doctor's daughter. <laughs> He's not Dempsey Matepeak's man, is he? I think so. Yeah. I could be wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. No, Dempsey and Makepeace Man is in Stolen Earth. Yes, what I was thinking. No, yeah. he's from something else. Was he from? Mm. He's also from something really yeah, famous, yeah. isn't he? Uh, he's he's not as ridiculous as some of the actors in some of the other things. Mm, mm. But by the same token, he's not doing it well no. because nobody else is doing it well around him. Everybody's having too much fun. This is perhaps part of the problem why it looks like Duplo between David Tennant and Catherine Tate. Mm is because they're just having so much fun doing it. Mm. And sometimes that works. Unicorn and the Wasp, I think that works. Mm. But when you're supposed to take something seriously, like in Planet of the Ood, where you're supposed to have this serious reaction to the bad things that's been done to this species, been doing to this species, and you're just kind of thinking, oh, everybody's having a party. Mm. It don't work. And this, and you know... And throw in, because you need to have this big action scene a third of the way through the story, otherwise you don't get an action scene to the end. Throw in the bit where David Tennant's been chased around the crate by a giant claw. Quite like that. But it's... it's <laughs> it doesn't it's need to be in there. It's just superfluous. It's pointless. Tom and Jerry. But I love it. It's fun. <laughs> it's a shame you've got the bloat on the thing saying, oh, I've always wanted to do this. <laughs> That's the only thing that spoils it. I don't mind it. I really don't mind it. It's fun. Mm. But you know, you come out of the back end of that scene and you're you think, well, completely that? out of the story. Mm. And it's difficult to take anything else seriously. Planet of the Ood is just, you know, again, like all the stories we've talked about so far, it's one of those things where I think if somebody actually sat down and made a proper story of this, it could be great. Mm. But the thing is, I think maybe nobody sat saying. down and made a proper story Because I was going to say, I watched it and really didn't, because all these years I've watched it since it was originally on, and all these years everyone's saying how bad, how terrible it was, and I really didn't think it was that bad. So it's one of those things where I got set up for it, expected it to be far worse than yeah. it was, because I didn't think it was that bad. I didn't great think it was that fun. bad. I think it was okay. Mm. I didn't think it was that bad. I did um, lots of little bits. It's great but the, fun, but yeah. I couldn't feel a single thing throughout the entire 45 minutes. No. Apart from the crying Catherine Tate bit. No, I couldn't feel that. But even that, well, I could feel that. No, because I cause actually her acting drew me in, but then it does. No, yeah. I just you looked know at that I liked, scene and I thought it that. was... No, didn't you like it? No. Oh, no, I looked at that scene and I just thought, this is hideously clunky. Mm. Oh, oh no, I appreciate Yeah, because it does just suddenly appear out of nowhere. And I suppose I'm And just, it's not far enough get... into the episode. Mm. It's not far enough into the series, actually. I think the thing is that she's three episodes in, and she already wants to leave because it's like you know, if you show me the horrors of yeah, or or rather three episodes in, and she saw already so comfortable with time traveling and meeting different species that she is having empathetic reactions to them instead of being scared and running away because yeah, it's she... not realistic. Mm. Do you know what? I, if you're going to show a trajectory for a character. You need, at the start, for them to find everything freaky and to have empathetic reactions by the end. But but you do have that in the episode, when she turns up and she's... Finds the Ood freaky. And then she's empathising with it ten minutes later. Yeah, because that's that's who she is as a character. She's trying her best to understand this universe. And she's she's not. She's come from being this... For want of a better word, this chav, this temp who doesn't empathise, yes, do who's her... entirely self-involved, no, and the trajectory she, of her character—that's because her the, traje- the trajectory of her character is she goes to a place where she empathises, but you're showing it too early, too much empathy, too early, 
not realistic. Mm, the way I rationalise it in my head is that it's uh, issues are with other humans, as opposed to other species. I mean, she might see it like she she treats it almost like an injured animal, doesn't she? To yeah, a certain extent. But that's the point. Yeah. She's not been there long enough to do that. This is an alien species. Mm, hard exterior, soft centre. Yeah, but no, but, but you're... That, yeah, but that's been there from the start. When? Well, it's just the sort of character she's playing. <clears throat> and it doesn't work. When she tells the Doctor he's, he's well, going what? too far with the Ragnarok. Yeah, exactly, so. it's there. But she's going too far. She's not empathising with the Ragnos children in the way she does here. She's accepting that they're children mm. and she's saying to the Doctor, you do know those are children, you're going too far. Mm. But by the same token, he has to do that. Mm. Mm. And but I don't not... know why she wouldn't react to that injured in any other way. Later in the series, she should. I'm saying, if you're telling a story... Okay. If you're telling a story, you have to layer it. You have to tell a story. Mm. You don't just jump to that beat. Because then where's know, the story going to go? But it's not. It's showing that she does have this soft centre. That that is there in her character. That is inherent in soft centre. It is a soft centre. She's empathising with an alien species. That's not a soft centre. That's something entirely yes, unnatural. It is. It's looking at something that's injured, that's about to die... And therefore, that touches on part of her personality that is usually covered up by a hard ex exterior. That's why she bellows all the time. It's because she's in a protective mode. That's what people do. That's what people of that kind do. No, this and that would, makes it more realistic. This should be in episode ten. It just—it's too much too soon. It leaves you with I, nowhere I, okay. to go. I and then after too much, too that, much too her soon. character is all yeah. back. Mm. After that, her character is all bad. Has nowhere to go. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, I do agree. This should be after Sontaran distraction. Yeah. One. Then you get the Sontaran story, and she's back. Mm. And then okay. you get the Doctor's daughter, and she's back. Mm. And mm. then you get the Unicorn and the Wasp, and she's back. When she sees the Wasp and the Unicorn and the Wasp, she's not. This is an alien species. Let's find out what it wants. Mm. She's. This is something freaky that I need to run away from. So you're saying the story itself should be later, if yeah. it's going to do that. Okay, yeah, needs, no, I understand yeah. that. Yeah. And then, if it had come later in the series, I could have appreciated it more. But as it was, where it came in the series, I just looked at it and said, you've made this character jump through this ruddy great hoop. And then, in the weeks that followed, she'd gone this right back through the yeah. hoop. This is post-Pfizer-Pompeii, though, isn't it? Yeah. Story straight after, isn't it? Yeah. And okay. in Pfizer-Pompeii... And that's already... Pfizer-Pompeii... She gets highly emotional over the human beings. Mm. It's too much of a leap to expect her to have exactly the same emotion for aliens. Oh, no, I don't, I don't think, think so. Story. I don't no, think I disagree that. with that. I appreciate what you're saying on the storytelling side of things, as far as showing this, of taking the audience through this journey of her character. I appreciate that, but I don't. But I also think Father Pompey is in the wrong place. That's, that's you know, I feel exactly the same. Yeah. After Ood, you mm. did have a run of stories where she was back to exactly who she was in the Adipose episode and Runaway Bride, that kind of stuff. Mm, mm. So these two with them should have been the most important parts for her, where you see her personality blossom and change. And then you get you that. You know what? It should have been immediately before the Stolen Earth, basically. This is that, yeah. I, this yeah. Is, again, this yeah. is that RTD thing of having this series opener, having these strong episodes, and then there's kind of this lull, isn't there? And then they pick it up again towards the end. Yeah. There's always this lull. Of rearranging the episodes according to their almost their hitting power. Well, normally as to he also does story. the darker stuff in the second half, but he also insisted on doing the 
Dr. Light episodes at the end of the series. Mm. Whereas he could have, you know, given what her character was supposed to be, to have the Doctor on a planet where he goes off and had an adventure, where she's lounging by the swimming pool, wouldn't that have come at the start of her character story? Yes. Possibly, yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. And you know, That's exactly it, yeah. That would have definitely been number two or number three. Yeah. Absolutely. Possibly number two, even. It's just the whole series. It's not that the whole series is backwards. Yeah. It's just that nobody's stopped to think about anything. It'd be interesting to watch them the way that we think they should be watched. Yeah, it taking, wouldn't taking make away sense the arc because stuff. the actors are also gauging their performance yeah, according maybe. to where they are I'm in the series. I'm not sure the Doctor would have cleared her off and left her on her own so early. No, I don't think so either, which is why I don't think it works. I don't think the whole series works. Mm. I don't think the whole series works as a story from start to finish. Mm. So what I'm saying is it makes it makes more sense the other way around, right. but it still doesn't make sense. No, no, okay. Mm. Um, going back to the cuddle dieting, some of the... You moved on to other subjects. I just wanted to say that I think that was far more conscious than just a particular lighting person being clumsy with their lighting. Oh, no, because, it's deliberate choice. Because it, across it the comes series. through, obviously, with my artwork and what have you. I see a lot of the pro- promotional material. So, all the way through all the imagery that was released, all the photographs that went out to the press and what have you, those colours come, particularly Dotter's Daughter, it's yeah, green. Santoran yeah. yeah. Stratagem is purple. These stories have a colour code, they have a a colour theme coming right the way through it. And unfortunately, that bleeds right through to the story big style. And it gets very annoying very quickly. Mm. The one other gripe I've got is the song itself. The Oud song. Didn't it make you cry? No. Well, no, the the scene did. I thought the scene was fine when she said, take it away, I don't want to hear it anymore. That kind of stuff. I I love the idea of that. The fact that the Doctor has to put up with that and and he keeps it in himself, that's fine. But it's the actual singing. And it, in, in isolation, when you listen to that on the soundtrack or whatever, it's, it's gorgeous. But why would Oud sound like a, a Welsh boys' choir? Or yeah. whatever it is that, why would Oud there? sound like exactly the same music as you have at the start of Rose, when Rose hears about the turning of the earth and the Doctor and stuff? And it's I tell you something else. Why, why would Rings of... The music in Rings of Akaten yeah, sound yeah. like something out of high school musical. Stop yeah, that. yeah. That was just terrible. No, but also, <laughs> there's another point here as well. The in the rings of Akaten and here, both exactly the same thing. That music is supposed to be diegetic. It's supposed to be yeah. music that's happening in the story. Mm-hmm. And yet, it's in exactly the same place in the soundtrack and done with exactly the same quality as the incidental music. So you can't yeah. tell when it's not supposed to be incidental anymore and when it's supposed to be diegetic. It needed to be treated so it sounded like they were actually singing. Mm. I think even though it's a completely bizarre track to use in Gridlock... And that would have been so easy and so simple. Mm. A completely bizarre track to use in Gridlock, the old rugged cross at the end. It works better because it's, it's been piped through the, the, the radio. So you can hear, oh yeah, that's that music's coming through the radio. But <clears> when we're talking about an age-old race of, of you know, flappy octopusy bloody hippies oh you'd love it'd be something like dark crystal or something like that it would be kind of a, mm, all kind of a little bit all, it'd be more like folk horror wouldn't it mm. <laughs> so, I mean, it'd be really wicker manny and odd and yeah, but grounded and earthy and it should murray be gold it should be great odd. Really odd. yeah the yeah. name is nearly odd isn't it yeah. murray gold is great incidental music but the trouble it is, is it's beautiful when he's supposed to do something diegetic it's exactly the same as his but, incidental music, so you just can't. No, but that might have been yeah. a, that might have been asked of him. He might they might have said we no, want it a bit like his, this. No, 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 that it's wasn't his, his, No, I'm 
But I'm talking, yeah, in the writing, it's still the same. Yes, you could have got away with that if you'd have treated it so it sounded like they were actually singing as opposed to the singing being on the soundtrack. And that's not him. That's the person who mixes it. It needs to hit it, an emotion. Actually, it should it have been just like a harmonic, shouldn't it, though? That think? would have been better. Yeah, just a... Like that, you know, yeah. kind of slight wah to it. That would have been fine. Do what the that. Beatles did at the start of Hard Day's Night and just find... <laughs> just an open chord and hit it. Bang. <laughs> no, 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 but if you're doing harmonics, you can build that. If you've got, say, oh, five yeah. ood, yeah. and they're each singing a different note, build to the chord that's at the start of a Hard Day's Absolutely. Night. Absolutely. You know what I yeah, mean? Great idea. Mm, yeah. Something that's an insane chord that nobody would ever play in a million years, and the Beatles just do it by itself at the start of a record. That's a single, that's a huge hit. A kind of drone, a Velvet Underground sort of. Yeah, yeah, but do yes. it in a way that just makes it beautiful. An mm. alien sounding. Because, mm. you know, that music there ain't going to make you cry. It was wrong. That was wrong. Wrong choice. But nice in isolation. We nice to listen to <clears throat> And I'm sorry, but Graham Harper, there are just... The man who's supposed to be renowned for his action stuff. Okay, the scene with the giant claw in the crate. Okay, that was zippy and fast. And the giant claw never once looked real in the entire scene. But the bit where the Ood attack and everybody's standing waiting for the Ood to come up them. You could have done something with that in the editing and you could have helped that process along by doing something with that in the shooting. But it was just the most hideously clunky action scene in all of Doctor Who. There's a lovely... Well, I thought it was a lovely deleted scene on the DVD, uh, which is Tim McKinnery as well. Again... And it's him being even nastier towards he says about removing somebody's pension and that sort of thing. And you get that that sense of him being a basically a shithead. Mm. But again, that's inconsistent. I did notice that that, it, that is inconsistent because he seems to flip between that and then suddenly caring all too easily. Mm. The bit at the end when he he apologizes to the Ood or go to go to your family or something like that, and you just think, all right, so all this time you've been no, but he's, showing he's turned, affection towards your into an Ood, isn't he? So you would have that schizophrenic. But you don't get any impression of that. No, no, you don't. You don't get it, obviously. Maybe that would have given the game away if it's too obvious. Mm. You know, but maybe that's what we needed was a few twitches <laughs> of, it, of his mm. eye or, you know, kind of like the odd well, he was. I mean, it is eyes. a completely ridiculous idea. Yeah. <laughs> Almost as bad as here's a species that turns from mammal to if, crustacean to, you know, If reptile. it was released that they were a species that basically bred from other species, that they all transformed, then that's something different, isn't yeah, it? But the fact the that they could suddenly got this ability, I suppose it's like some people don't like the idea of the angels, weeping angels, suddenly having other abilities. Well. Shall we find out what came seventh? Yeah. Enough on Planet of the Ood. Uh, here we go. Graham McClue says, Harmless fun and the mime scene is hilarious. Ian Martin says... <laughs> The scene where the Doctor and Donna see each other through the glass is beautiful. And Dylan Reese says the plot is a little odd and doesn't really impress. But the two leads are on such fine form, it is impossible not to love this. And the Rose cameo at the end is brilliant. Obviously, this is Partners in Crime then. Mm. Which came seventh out of the ten. I thought this stuff at the start, the first ten, fifteen minutes, where they're sort of... Going around each other and not quite finding each other. Mm. I thought it was a great idea. It almost came off, but I thought it was a bit underdeveloped. Do you know, it what was I mean? obvious. It was just it was like the Doctor's Daughter thing of suddenly within two minutes 
the thing that's supposed to happen is happening. So I thought it would be nice if we'd seen the situation and then all of a sudden <laughs> it was a bit too pleased it. with itself. You get the doctor with a big grin on his face walking into a building. Yeah. But you don't find yeah. out but you don't get any sense of what brought him there. No. And you know, I'm not saying you should but have had a scene a where he finds something yeah. to take him there. But you need to It felt like a replay of Smith and Jones. Mm. To me, that same yeah, yeah. feeling. But you know what I mean? He's got there's such a big grin on his face, you don't get any sense of purpose. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I don't know, I I just got a sense throughout that entire sequence. Well, I said it just a few minutes ago, didn't I? I got a sense throughout that entire sequence that everybody making the program, including the people on the screen, were just having a party. Mm. I thought it was really silly when I first watched it. And I had, I, I, I couldn't believe what I was watching. These little fat creatures waddling about. Couldn't, couldn't do it. And I thought, oh, we haven't got to the adipose yet. We'll get there. Oh, well. It's got adipose in it. Um, oh, let's talk about the first 10 minutes then. Well, yeah, what about the scene at the start? What did you think of that? <laughs> um, remind me that I said it's really silly. Hey, well, the scene at the start, well, it's quite funny. I think that's the best part of all of it. I really enjoyed it. I thought it cracked along at a pace. It's quite funny through the windows. I was yeah, that, I, I, wasn't I applauded when that, that bit happened. That was so was, funny. And was it was, I was thinking, well, because this is the first time we saw Catherine Tate in action again. And I was thinking, okay, this is this is good. This isn't bad. I just hope it's not high slapstick comedy all the way through, as much as I like that, because I don't think it would be able to maintain it. And it didn't. It calmed down a bit, and then we had a story, kind of. It was very slim, but but I liked the ideas in it. But, I mean... <laughs> And the, the way it ended was kind of a bit slight as well. Yeah, pretty hey. good. Um, but you always expect that in the first episode when you're introducing a character because you're really doing it to introduce a character. So kind I of mean, too weighty. Oh, and Donna's theme is great. Yeah. It, Murray Gold always writes good themes for the companions. Yeah, the motif is good yeah. for mm. um, Yeah, but... Uh, the bits that I enjoyed were the actually after the opening sequence, the the the, the bit with the windows, mm. right? That was great. Nobody can argue with that. That's a good scene. Mm. And the payoff at the end of the scene, the punchline, is fantastic. But then after that, because it's about these adipose of children and they're cute. I didn't mind that. You know what I said right back at the start of this podcast about do a season where everything's not a threat. And that was another example of the series doing something where it's not necessarily the kind of threat that you're used to expecting in Doctor Who. I didn't mind that at all. I thought the adipose were great. I thought they were tremendous fun. And I thought, okay, I'm quite happy for Doctor Who, Doctor Who to do an episode like this. And apart from the first 10 or 15 minutes, I don't think this suffers as badly from everybody's having a party as a lot of the other episodes this series do. No, it does feel like it's, it's concentrating on trying to get the episode right. Yeah, mm, and mm. the stuff with um, what's the name from EastEnders or yeah, Coronation Sarah Street? Sarah Lancashire, she's great. Yeah, she's actually good at it. She's this. really good at it, and she's taking it seriously, mm. and they're taking her seriously. And you can actually feel, yes, you know, as much as I've said this is a different kind of a threat, you can actually feel the threat. Mm. And the, the only thing that lets that down is the fact that it is 
because it's an opening episode and because Russell T. Davis gets away with it every year, that the story element is a bit slight, the plot's a bit slight. So you don't feel like mm. any of these things have really been developed. Mm. So it's like, turn up, here is the threat, such as it is. Here's the character who's, you know, uh, enacting the threat. And, oh, we got rid of her, everything's fine. I do think it's some missed opportunities. Some more comedy missed opportunities with all these lumps oh, appearing yeah. on people's bodies and stuff. Oh, was... all kinds. So you could have made it into a full-on comedy episode, couldn't you? Yeah. Comedy sci-fi, done right, mm. could have been. Maybe that's what people think... didn't like, that it veered between the two. I thought it but was I... okay. No, no, I mean, the comedy between the humans and the, and the general dialogue is great in this. But it's I, I do have, I, well, I did rather have a massive problem with the adipose. Simply because when I saw the making of it afterwards as well, but, just, you know, that... that kind of consolidated my fears is that the designer said oh and I thought I'd give him a little tooth I thought it'd be really funny or whatever and I thought no actually that just annoyed me even more why would the species of fat have a little tiny tooth sticking out it just annoys me you know I we said about it earlier that if you're going to design a creature or you're going to design something you need to really think about why it's doing what it's doing what's it what's its point what is modus operandi or whatever and you've got the ones which which uh, were created from the complete process yeah. where the person just disappeared then you'd think oh they might have some bone in there in them somewhere exactly that kind of thing I mm. don't know but uh, you know I like the whole idea that it's a nursery and that she's a what is she not not a midwife but a Baking, nanny nanny yeah. yeah I love the idea of that I love the idea that it's, it's it is fat and it is they are strange little creatures but the design themselves just it just felt like a, a children's. It felt like Teletubbies, and I couldn't get behind I it. I just think they look like walking chewy mints. Yeah, but then I, <laughs> yes, yeah, I remember those were lovely. Cinnamon ones were the best. But uh, and then I spoke to my friend Tony, Mister Tony Eccles, thinking that he'd be on the, along the same lines. Of me. I said, "What do you think of that episode? It was so stupid, wasn't it?" And he went, "No, I bloody loved it." <laughs> and then he just went on about how cute they were. He said, "I hope they release a plushie. I want one." <laughs> yeah, and that was it. And I thought. Oh, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, You know, it was designed for... It's kind of the Mogwai thing, isn't it? Yeah, it was designed for kids to enjoy. Mm. And Tony Tony is a big kid. So... And let's face it, when you see the adipose on the street, and there's thousands of them, Mm. that does pose... That does work. ...like a really weird threat. It's the juxtaposition of something cute in a place and behaving in a way that suddenly makes it freaky and weird and disturbing and threatening, yeah. like the candy man in The Happiness Patrol. I love the idea at the end that they turn around and so they don't they realise that she's been actually... You know, the adipose themselves never meant to threaten anyone. They no. were just... They're just made. We use that word benign again. Yeah. Probably more appropriately this time. But, yeah, yeah the idea was that they were just going to produce some children and then yeah. clear off again. But they don't want anything to do with her because she's been breaking the rules, I think. So I like that. Mm. I yeah, really like there's, that. There's, there's lots of lots of elements in it that I, I think work. But it's very un-Doctor Who-y in an odd yeah, way. Yeah, why not? Yeah. I mean, as you long in as... your new season. <laughs> no, but as long as you've got the basic elements there, and the basic elements are all there, and there's nothing better in Doctor Who than when you take the basic elements and come up with a new recipe. Mm. Yeah, it, it is fun. I, I was, I'm still mixed about it, I think. Now and again, I'll watch it. Like, mm. It's certainly not among my favourites of the series. 
But I do like it. There's something mm. about it. I can't quite put my finger on it. Yeah, because they're not a threat and because they look like they do, it, it kind of tricks your brain into thinking it's a bit flimsy. But actually, it isn't. Not really. There's quite a lot of fat in it, really, isn't there? There is, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Are we making fat jokes now? <laughs> At least it's you that's making it, Luke. <laughs> How rude. I can't believe it, but it has been a running theme of this episode. That's off the scale. <laughs> <clears throat> Um, it was. It was. What did right. you think of the Deus Ex Macarine? Oh, sorry, just wanted to cram it in there. Well, it wasn't in this, was it? No, don't matter. There was just a scene. To get a food joke in, and, and you know, and the Deus Ex. It did thing. have an unnecessary scene where Donna has to do some jiggery pokery with a computer or a machine or something, didn't it? It's. Oh, well, where she's got the thing around her neck. No, the, the, isn't there a scene in a... I can't remember, trying to remember now. Towards the end, it's one of those bits that you always put out of your mind because it just doesn't work and you just there's, think, what's There's one where the doctor's it? trying to break the force field or something, isn't he? And Something like that, And he yeah. needs something else to... And then she's still got the thing around her neck. Yeah, that's the... Yeah. Which is really useful. That's the... Uh, it's the companion's first story. She needs to prove her worth. So, lo and behold, she just happens to have the right thing. Exactly. But the actual ending itself is actually nicely worked through. Mm. So, but, 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 what I was about to say was that scene itself is another case of Rusty Davis seemingly throwing something at a story because it thinks it should be there rather than because it actually warrants it. And, you know, this is kind of the story of Series 4 is that it's just lots of things thrown at the stories. In fact, he did this a lot, but I think it becomes more and more obvious and less and less successful at getting away with it as time goes on. Mm -hmm. So by the time you get to Series 4, all I can think of now looking back at Series 4 is End of Time was just around the corner and you can see everything that's wrong about End of Time here. Mm. But, by the same token, End of Time is still great fun and I can stick it on and watch it and enjoy it. Same as I can stick on and watch and enjoy all of these stories, including the one that comes fifth, which Ian Martin says is deathly dull, which Graham McClue says looks great and the guest star has promise, and which Dylan Reese says, much like Planet of the Ood, this just doesn't quite come together. It's not that it's bad, it just isn't as exciting as it should be. Lots to like, but little to love. And the story we're talking about... Is the fires of Pompeii that guest star is Peter Capaldi? It's in about the right place, isn't it? I'll just keep your tea over. Do you think so? Sorry about that. <clears throat> oh, what in the in the top ten? Do you think it's far better than I remember it actually from rewatching it? I liked it first time, apart from the uh, yeah, the bit where uh, the lights and the music and David Tennant overacting to the heavens. Yeah, I can do with less of that. But the rest of it, I liked. Mm. It, it's a solid story from start to finish. Isn't it's it? well enough written yeah. in that, again, it what it says is, right, what's this story about? Okay, here are the things we need, and this is how to make them fit together. Mm. Not just fit together jigsaw-like, but fit together on a sort of textual level and it brings up thorny issues of, of what the doctor does and I, I, I think does it really though because i don't think it does i think that whole bit at the end is 
a huge um <clears throat> what's the word can't think of the word I'm compound remember. no a huge straw man I wasn't expecting that <laughs> um the bit at the end where that it's built around the idea and it does it here in the right way uh by not stressing what it's doing mm. it doesn't say this is a fixed point and so it's not all about because in the waters of mars the big problem with that is because we haven't seen it because it's taking place in our future they have to tell us that it's a fixed point in the dialogue rather than showing us in the actions but because we know pompeii happened they don't have to tell us so they get away with not telling us so we know as an audience that everybody there dies and we because we know that everybody dies doesn't mean that the doctor can't rescue someone and put them somewhere else because there's no record from roman times saying gosh something really freaky happened somebody who was living in x place suddenly turned up in y place at a time when he should still have been in x place because we have records to show that at 3:30 p.m. on the 17th of August he was there and at 3:31 p.m. on the 17th of August he was there that doesn't happen the doctor can very easily get somebody out so that entire last scene is this huge straw man thing where they've brought something up in order to prove a point but the thing that they've brought up is entirely irrelevant to the point that they're trying to prove but i thought the whole thing was that you know it's like the butterfly effect isn't it mm. if you mm. keep somebody alive that's four people you've kept alive who will then produce children upon children upon children who shouldn't really be on the earth that start Lee, affecting the earth in doctor who stop i'm enjoying myself in doctor who <laughs> you can't tell father's day no in doctor who you can't tell that story because by the very two that's my Lee, point isn't it Lee Lee JR aren't they trying to <sighs> isn't the point of this yes but it's just I like I can't in... save anybody because of that not I can't save anybody because they're but it's living just in a like in the Aztecs where he says you can't change history not one line mm. patently you can and in the previous season to the fires of Pompeii in the fires of Pompeii slot the first historical episode 2 you have the shakespeare code that's got carrionites flying around uh inside the globe theater butterfly effect you've got actual aliens flying around inside a theater but we have to assume that's happened that's the point that's why you can't tell this story because by the same token that you have to assume that happened if you're going to take a family out you have to assume that that happened too yeah but at that point in that story the doctor doesn't know that does he but he, he knows he already that. that the carrionites are flying inside the globe and he doesn't have that in his memory of things that happened in the globe <clears throat> well, the series just changes the rules as and when the dramatic need arises surely exactly this is if you're going to tell the story of whether it's right to pull somebody out of a situation where you shouldn't pull them out because of what might happen afterwards then you have to follow through and tell that story that has to be the story that you can that you tell and this is what ruins the waters of mars as well uh, just to go off on a slight tangent mm. the waters of mars the future of earth's space exploration is dependent upon the fact that adelaide makes the ultimate sacrifice by dying on mars mm. 
and her granddaughter goes off and does brilliant things because her grandmother died on Mars, taking those first giant steps for humankind onto an actual alien planet. The granddaughter is not going to be inspired, as inspired as she was by a grandmother dying on Mars, doing something amazing, as she is by a grandmother committing suicide in some seedy front room in London. Mm. It's ridiculous. And by the same token, Fires of Pompeii, the Doctor could very easily have brought that family out, dropped them somewhere else. Nobody would have been any the wiser. It wouldn't have made any difference. In a story in which you've got giant, fire-breathing rock creatures stomping around in ancient Rome. What he could have done is gone away, worked out, oh, hang on, this family survived. How did they survive? Oh, I know how they survived. And then brought them out. And there would have been a kind of logic to it, maybe. And if you're going to say they're trying to tell the butterfly effect story, then they wouldn't have a little temple with a blue police box in it at the end of the story. I tell you what, it must have some kind of Roman insurance policy or something like that for them to have a new house that fast. (laughs) Do you reckon? (coughs) It doesn't add up. Just relocate because there'll be a house there waiting for us. (laughs) But apart from that... Mm. Everything else in that story really works. Yes. The pyroviles really work. The tone is lovely. Yeah, and the the um, oh, I forget what they call them in the program, but the um, the soothsayers mm. really works. And the whole that scene where they go in and um, oh, what's his face as character? Um, where they're having the whole thing where I know something you don't from mm. the future. Mm. I know something you don't from the future. I know something even worse that you don't know <laughs> from the future. All this kind of stuff. Those scenes like that, absolutely astonishing. And you're watching that thinking, there's not going to be an explanation for this. That adds up. This mm. is just stupid. It's brilliant, but it's stupid. And then there's an explanation that basically within the story makes sense. And it does add up. Mm. Yeah. It's a great story. Take the last 10 minutes away. Last 10 minutes doesn't ruin it, but the last sort of five or 10 minutes just. It does say, a, if there was a logic to it, 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 it if there it. was literally a record of a family who survived and inexplicably, then it would it would kind of add up. And then that would still tie in with, of course, the Capaldi face thing. No, I have no problem with him saving him. Mm. My problem is with him thinking he can't. Mm. Why on earth? Why on earth? Would Doctor Who, of anybody, mm. think, oh, I can't save them? Why? Doc- the Doctor, who for 50 years we've watched saving people, why would he suddenly stop and say, oh, I can't save them? I can't remember. Was there a reason why he said that then? In the... Is there actually because Russell T. Davis wanted this scene where Donna says to him, yes, you can. Yeah, I know that, but it's there No, that's it. The that's entirely it. <laughs> everybody here is supposed to die. No, yeah, everybody is supposed to die in the same way as the volcano is supposed to go off because of magma and there's not supposed to be giant rock-breathing, fire-breathing rock creatures stomping around the countryside. It's Doctor Who. You either save them or you don't save them, but you don't stop and say, I can't save them. Mm. Give me an idea for a story. (laughs) You didn't save Adric, did you? No. Yeah, but, you know. <laughs> Disposable? Is that the word you're thinking of? Well, that gave me an idea for us doing <laughs> Happy accident, is that the word? Uh, Fires of Pompeii, any, any, 
<clears throat> no, I really liked it. Really enjoyed it far more than I did the first time around. I thought it was a bit kind of yeah. silly and a bit wishy washy. But no, actually, I... no, I I got the the oomph of it this time. I, I really liked the was, way yeah. it showed the the because f- they do this and you kind of think ah, it's not really very realistic, is it? But the car- the way the family kind of analogizes the modern. 4.2 family mm. was quite <laughs> nice. It was. It wasn't too much. They didn't do too much with it. No, it was that nice. Of, that nice, and the villain was good. There's a nice yeah. line at the start about the Tardis uh, doing the translation thing. So, so yes. she says, "What well, yes. it sound like if I spoke Latin?" Yeah. And she sounds Welsh. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of great stuff in there. Some mm. great ideas. Yeah. And you know, you, I have to say, I got the impression here that. Yeah, you know, much as I hate to say it, because I do think Russell T. Davis is a brilliant writer. I just think maybe Doctor Who wasn't his series at mm. the end of it. I think, he, you know, his first series of Doctor could Who could be a brilliant, workload thing. But could be a workload thing. Could you know, be Steve, whatever Steve has a certain amount of luxury, and as much as the time is can be shifted around. But at this point, you know, he was still. Russell T. Davis was still riding on the crest of the wave that BBC said, oh my God, we've got this hit. And he's like, you know, it's amazing. It's getting more and more popular as it's going further and further off the rails. Mm. It's just odd. <laughs> mm. But, 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 I, I got the impression because this story added up in a way that a lot of the stories around it don't, that maybe there was less rewrite in there. Mm. Maybe the original writer just nailed it from the start wonder, maybe Russell T Davis had a brilliant idea and gave it to him from the start so well, maybe it, I mean Fires of Olken was out wasn't it from Big Finish which was which dealt with exactly the same situation but using Mel and that was a great story I thought it was one of you know one of the Big Finish's best at that point but I can't quite remember what the plot of the story was but I'm just wondering whether RTD looked at it and thought oh yeah we'll do one in Pompeii exactly the same Kind of thing. No, uh, the reason he did it was because there was a line in series two, is it, where it's Volcano Day. Oh, yeah. That's his original right. fixed point thing. Is um, I can't remember what story it was, but there was one story where one of the characters says, um, you know, some event that they know about is coming up, and the character says, this event's coming up, and the Doctor says, yeah, Volcano Day. That's what gave him the inspiration to do Fires of Pompeii, to literalise that expression. Yeah. Surely plus the set for Rome as well. I was going to say. Use that. Yeah, that's another element, of course. Mm. And of course it looked great. It's just, yeah. Yeah, no, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a rock-solid story all the way through. I even liked um, his uh, Green Gilbert guy. Ah, What's his name? The guy playing the salesman at the start. He sells the TARDIS. Phil Cornwell. Phil Cornwell, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, he was... You know, for what he had to do, he was great. And our and our actor is the taxi man in uh, Sherlock. What's his name again? <laughs> do a lot of this, don't we? <laughs> yeah, famous actor, the one with the stone arm. Oh yes, yeah, Phil Davis. That's the Phil name Davis I was trying was. to mm. reach yeah. for before. Absolutely superb. Plays it completely. Mm. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Again, like in Partners in Crime, they're not running away and having a party with it, no. having a ball with it. Which is why, which is where things like Journey's End, we'll talk about this next week, obviously, because we're at the last one this week, where things like that fall down is that I can't take the peril seriously when the people in the programme aren't taking the peril seriously. And it's not all about whether they're actually doing things with a grin on their face. It's not anything so ridiculously obvious as that. But if you're getting... If I can't believe that the actor believes what the character's supposed to believe, then I can't believe in the threat. 
and series four increasingly as you get towards the end. There are exceptions. Midnight, Silence in the Library, this. You know, there are exceptions, but mm, there's mm. so much of this series. And it was an increasing thing throughout Russell T. Davis. The series two had maybe 25% of it was like that. Series three, maybe 50%. Here, maybe 75%. It just seems to be going in that direction. So mm, that mm. by the end of the time, by the time of the end of time, just like you can almost see the balloons going off in the background. Capaldi mm. was in this, and Karen Gillan. Yeah, it's oh, a it's a confluence of the future <laughs> in a story where everybody's got the ability to predict what's to come. <laughs> I just want to uh, say a thing. A thing came up in one of the newspapers this week, didn't it? Saying about Catherine Tate. Whether she'd be the next doctor, I just don't think that's as much as I love her. That's well, not a good idea. The, 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 not the, a good idea. This is we're talking two years away, a year away. Don't that wouldn't even go anywhere near any of those. Oh, this types is of, one of these bizarre things. It's just a about. stupid thing that she said, and that it's taken off. And well, this is coming back to the series. Okay, mm. I'll just not. I don't quite, <laughs> quite finish my point, but coming back, coming back to the series. Uh, that's not such a ridiculous idea, but the idea of her becoming a doctor at this early stage, even it's not even worth entertaining these ideas. I get fed up with this. We're going to get this for two years now, aren't we? All I, the point I just wanted to make is that well, the thing I appreciate about her in this series is that you can kind of see that she's attacking this. She's not somebody who's invested in the series in the same way as, say, David Tennant, somebody who's kind of almost like aware that they're in Doctor Who. She yeah, yeah. treats it as a part. Yes, yeah. and plays it completely straight, just like Christopher Eccleston did, and um, I think it's a strong performance, as much because of that, and as another reason why I wouldn't. Well, maybe the thing that works about it is because David Tennant knows he's in Doctor Who, mm. and she doesn't. Mm. That synergizes with the fact that the Doctor is supposed to be going off the rails a bit, and she's supposed to be keeping him in check. Mm. Mm. So maybe off screen and on screen are doing the same thing. Anyway, on the point of the next Doctor, presuming that Chris Chibnall will start with a Doctor of his own and this kind of stuff, on a number of podcasts and other places this week, I've been hearing all this stuff about why are we trying to second-guess things that are two years away, like whether we'll get a new Doctor, because Chris Chibnall's Doctor Who will presumably start Easter 2018. Mm. Right. Easter 2018 might be two years away, but they're actually going to start making that in a year. So if he does start with a new doctor, they're going to have to, to make sure you get the right person, cast that person several months ahead of when they start shooting. So if there's going to be a new doctor, then we are going to hear about Peter Capaldi leaving and the new doctor starting within the next few months. Certainly by the end of this year, I'd have thought. Yeah, that's the end of this year, though. That's a long time away. It's not that long a time so away. Second guessing Ta- Catherine Tate this early on is just going to Oh, I don't mean that's even in the ballpark. <laughs> no, exactly, yeah. that's my point. But if... So we're going to get if, this It's David Hanselhoff's coming back. Today. If, Lee, if they want Catherine Tate... <laughs> if they want Catherine Tate to be the next Doctor, to start shooting as the next Doctor in approximately 12 months' time, they are talking to Catherine Tate now... And if they are talking to Catherine Tate now, and some journalist gets wind of it, then that story gets blown this early. So, Lee, this early is not too early 
to find out when the next doc who the next doctor is if indeed there will be a next doctor when chris chibnall takes over what about the source from where it came from what do you mean where did it come from this Oh, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't even saying, bother reading it. But. I'm not saying it's true or that I think it's true, Lee. I'm questioning the fact that you think it's too early. If, I do think it's too early. Yeah. I think it's I too think, early. As far as, I still think it's too We early. still have another Why series. Six months time, maybe, maybe, but not, not now. Why? Do you think... Why do you think... If they're going to start shooting Chris Chibnall's first episode in 12 months, then you have to if find the actor... If we to find actor, out tomorrow who it was... We've still got that long to wait until we see that person on the screen. Plus, we've got poor old Capaldi trying to do his best to give us a last season and act. He hasn't even got the scripts yet, I expect, for the for next year. It's, it, it is too early, for sure, no. to know anything. If it's leaked out, that's a different matter, isn't it? But there's nothing anybody can do about that. And if they are seeing people secretly, yeah, I understand that that's probably happening already. Mm. In Ch- Chibnall's head, he's got to be thinking about it now. And Totally. If- and if there's a chance it's going to leak out, which is what happened with the announcement that Moffat was leaving and Chibnall was taking over, which we weren't apparently supposed to find out last oh, week. Right. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Then no, the BBC will quickly tell us to try and ameliorate the leak. Mm. And here's the thing, Lee. This is why, during the production process of the Stephen Moffat stories, every time there has been location filming... They've made a little press release about the location filming, telling us what actors are going to be in the story and what the monster's going to be. So we find out there's going to be Zygons in story six mm. or mm. whatever, and that uh, it's going to have Kate Stewart in it and Osgood's coming back. Because the following day, if the BBC haven't told us that, then there's going to be pictures of them all over the internet and the newspapers. Mm. If... Chris Chibnall and his producers are talking to new doctors now, then there is a possibility that somebody will find that out. And yes, in an ideal world, they won't tell us who's replacing Peter Capaldi until Peter Capaldi's last series is in the can and on the screen. But the fact is, Chris Chibnall's Doctor Who is almost certainly going to be going before the cameras before the last Peter Capaldi episode's gone out. Mm. At some point, they're going to have to make a decision about telling us. Or, if it looks like it's going to leak, then they're going to have to preempt that by telling us. And all I'm saying is, that could happen from any point from now onwards. Because if things are already being worked on behind the scenes, then there is a possibility of leaks. Although, you almost can't not. Peter Capaldi could have leaked at any point by anybody finding out that by by anybody find, age. <laughs> by anybody finding out that Peter Capaldi had been cast as Doctor Who and there had to be people who would know. Right, you can't cast an actor as Doctor Who without people knowing. Yeah, you know, as much as Stephen Moffat likes to think it's between him and the casting director and Peter Capaldi. There are pieces of paper with signatures on. Although, and so on. how cool would it be? It was just exceptional that they got to the programme and yeah. people didn't know about, well, two days before people found out. Yeah, yeah but good. Although what would be really cool is your uh, theory about Peter Capaldi coming in as executive producer or something like that, which would mean that he would be there at the set for the following series 
and they could have an actor coming in who you don't know don't know who they play, but they're actually playing the Doctor. Well, so the executive therefore... producer's not at the set. The line producer's at the set. Oh, but what's to stop him being? Yeah, yeah, but, but he could. Yeah, but he could be there at the set just yeah, yeah. just to um, miss a bit, bit misdirection. Oh, could be brilliant. Too, but I. But the way it looks is that they're filming and they're. Mm. broadcast they're probably going to overlap by too much to get away with something like that okay the other thing i want to talk about very briefly is i've seen people uh writing that how dare how so, dare. something else is going to leak in as well <laughs> <laughs> you know they're sort of saying they're talking like oh they should let peter capaldi how dare they come in and stop peter capaldi from having an extra an extra couple of years if he wants to i mean they're going to talk they're, they're human <laughs> beings they're going to talk to each other they're going to try and work out what's best for the series. And also, there's this thing, same as Stephen Moffat, is that Peter Capaldi is going to do what he thinks best for the series. And he will probably agree that if it's going to start with a fresh new era, then he would probably agree, yeah, actually, it should have a new Doctor to give it a new start. To be fair, from what people have said, it sounds like Peter Capaldi's on a season-by-season contract, so technically it'd be very easy for the BBC to get rid of him against his better wishes if that were the case. Oh, really? I don't know if that is the case, but that's... I don't know as if they would, though. Well, you'd hope not, but... uh, And if they did want to, you'd hope that everybody would sit down and talk it out reasonably. Mm. And if Peter Capaldi does stay on as an executive producer, which is kind of what the indications look like might happen... Oh, really? I I thought that was your hunch. No, Peter Capaldi apparently uh, is from next year has a executive producer capacity. Oh, wow. Well, you wouldn't think he'd take that on for just one year. No. My assumption, looking at that on face value, is give him that in his last year in front of the screen so that afterwards, because he's a presence and an ambassador, he stays on behind the scenes. And then, from the actor's point of view, from That's Capaldi's... so exciting. That'd From Capaldi's cool. point of view, it means he gets to do a little bit of a Barry Letts with Christopher H. Bidmead and John Nathan Turner. He gets to not pull the strings, <sighs> yeah, yeah. but he gets to be a presence that people can influence. say, yeah, I don't think, like a very heavy influence, I don't think Barry Letts really influenced a lot of season 18. I think it's all Christopher H. Bidmead, really. Mm. But he's the kind of presence who you can turn around and say, look, this is what we want to do. Do you think it's a good idea? And you say, yeah, and also, why not just a little bit of this while you're doing that? And it adds a bit of integrity to it as well. Yeah. You know, clout. And also, it unlike when Moffat took over from RTD, when there was almost no continuity behind the scenes, mm. and any continuity that he was almost had gone by the end of Series 5, this gives a kind of a, a baseline of continuity behind the scenes as well. And another thing about the whole Chris Chibnall situation that I've seen rearing its ugly head these past few couple of... no, oh, this past week or so, mm-hmm. is people coming at it... Well, this is an example of confirmation bias. People saying things like, uh, under Stephen Moffat, Doctor Who slightly started being a bit rocky in terms of the viewing figures and stuff. And in truth, maybe a tiny bit, but only a tiny bit. Not so much that anybody's really worried about it. And putting it back on at Easter will probably... Certainly not piling it into the ground, like people are saying. And people are saying, what the BBC need after Stephen Moffat is a safe pair of hands. So why have they got Chris Chibnall And you have to look at that and think, the last two things he did for the BBC were United and The Great Train Robbery, which were both very successful and very good. And the last other thing he's did 
done is Broadchurch, which not only was hugely successful and became genuine water cooler TV, but also won BAFTA for Best Drama. And BAFTA is voted for by industry professionals. So it's not like it was just a public vote voting for the most popular programme that they'd really enjoyed this year. It was industry professionals saying this is the best drama on television this year. What in any of that could make anybody think that the BBC were looking at Chris Chibnall and thinking, that's the best we can get? No, Chris Chibnall is the safe pair of hands. <laughs> I just you look at some of these people. I love think, the way they focus on the early stuff as well. It's like, <clears> oh, yeah, yeah, like any musician doesn't get better as they go along. This no. is this is the problem I've had as well, and I've tried to avoid getting on the net this this week because it's not just the fact that um, you know they're worried about Chris Chibnall taking over. It's the uh, vitriolic response to him taking over that that that, that really upsets me. You know, there's well, some really that nasty. Was always st- gonna happen. Yeah, yeah, we know, but there was some really nasty stuff in there. People are trying to back up the nasty quotes and stuff that they've said about him. Why? What's the matter with everybody? Just wait and see. I mean, this is the, when Russell T. Davis took over the you know uh, program. He took the program on. People were going, "Oh, we're going to get a gay doctor. We're going to get this and the other." And you know, how wrong was everybody? It was a great series opener, and you know, it kept the program alive for years. Stephen Moffat takes over, and everybody's thinking, "Oh, it's going to be great." And then they all wanted to put him into the earth. He was a gay doctor, though. <laughs> In Aliens of London, Rose turns to him and says, you're so gay. And if you're going to read it absolutely literally, he must therefore be a gay character. You're so gay. uh, You haven't got your tongue in cheek there, I hope. Yeah, of course. Good. Um, Yeah, but I've got my tongue in cheek for a reason. Because certain people take things at such face value and so literally that they kind of miss the point. Can I just say something I said to you in a in a, a private conversation on Facebook, but I wanted to say it on here as well. I've been checking out various podcasts during the week outside of the Doctor Who thing. So just I want yeah. to know what's out there. And the best one I heard this week was the Adam Buxton podcast where he interviews <laughs> Catelyn Moran. And she makes this brilliant point about the internet where she was talking about the early days of Twitter and how it's different now, but she's saying about how people are, are learning to use social media. It will get better. But at the moment, people aren't really sure how to deal with it. She said the best way of thinking it is that everyone who's speaking in social media has got a couple of pints down them because their tongue's slightly looser. They're being a little bit more unfiltered because it's like it's like shouting at someone when you're driving your car. It's that same thing. So your opinions come out. And, then, through and when people say something to you, you take it at face value. You read the sentence and think, surely they don't mean that. I'll take umbrage to that. So it's essentially the same as somebody picking a fight in a pub. It's because you can't see the person at the other end of the internet. Mm. No. I also say... But, to... but, but you know, that, that kind of explains a lot of, of what goes on. If you <clears throat> met that person face-to-face, you would... It's kind of obvious, though. But I think oh, yeah, but I think, it's, thing again, that... it's a lovely analogy. I... I think it's brilliant. It explains a lot. I've probably said this a few times, though. Uh, sorry if I have, but I'd look at it this way, that if you're going to put a status update on your main timeline on Facebook and you've got a thousand friends, which a lot of people have nowadays, just imagine those thousand friends in a hall looking at you and you're on stage with a microphone. So you stand up and say that status update to these thousand people, 300 of which your own family 
or a family and friends and then there's a whole bunch of people you've never met before but you might meet and a whole lot of professionals that you may want to work with one day if you're that kind of person like an actor or um, writer you know stand up and and in front of all those people that are your friends and say what you're about to say would you do that would you actually do that and I tell you what, when that because that's something that I, th I thought of early on when I joined Facebook. That stopped me from putting up the most ridiculous updates. <laughs> I really think thoroughly, you know, before I stick anything up about eating cream buns. Uh, that's naked. the other thing is that if you're if you're in that. That's why I make the jokes I do. <laughs> <laughs> if you're in that profession, then to do that, it's like shooting it's yourself just, in the head. It makes you just look so stupid yeah. and so unprofessional. You it's will shoot yourself in the foot. You will eventually. Yeah. But just you know, you know, um, and if you, if you feel tempted to do it, and we've all done it, yeah, is literally type it, then press delete. But you've got it out of your brain, you've got the opinion out there, and just let it drift away. But that's my whole. Because it's point. not going to make a blind bit difference what you say. Yeah, sorry, go on. No, no, that's my point. And that, and you know, we've had talks this week on Facebook with certain people and arguments and what have you about Chibnall, and you just think. Come on, you know you're you're better than this. You're more grown up than this. We're all, you know, some of us are professional, some of us are not. But just think about what you're saying, and think about what you're saying. Mm. Just think about it. What you're actually writing down there, and also whether it's true or whether it's not. If you are in that profession, you're being like that about something which a lot of people Slander, think is a lot great. Of slanderous stuff going on. Well, yeah, but it's it's going to come across. As a certain amount of jealousy, regardless of whether it is or not, whether you've got an opinion about how the writing is, it's going to come across as jealousy. There's, there's... Right, I'm going to stop this now. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um, uh, but it is Doctor Who related, so we can move on now, though. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next week, we'll come back and we'll find out what won. Oh, and we'll talk a little bit about tactical voting. <laughs> 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 But until then, I was JR. I was Lee. I was Simon. Oh, and I didn't get to review the album. Never mind. We'll speak again soon. You have no idea what's about to happen. Oh my god. You're listening to. No, I did that you one did last that. time. <laughs> I've got to think of a new one this time. Paloma Faith, go on. I can't do a Paloma Faith. You just told me you like Paloma. Paloma. Paloma Pavlova. I said she was okay. That doesn't mean to say I can do an impersonation of her. Can you do Paolo Nutini? No. Who's Paolo Nutini? Just, just stick an orange in your mouth. And oh, just <clears throat> pick a random voice.
Me. Oh. Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo? <laughs> I haven't seen Scooby-Doo since I was about eight. It sounds like Tom Waits. <laughs> Shall I just do Tom Waits again? I'll just keep doing Tom Waits and each week I'll say it's a different person. Hey, that was the Macy Gray. That was the Louis Armstrong. It is Louis Armstrong. It sounds more like that, I think. Lyle Lover, is he another one who's like that? I'll just do the same one each week and say it's a different person.